Hi, I'm Trevor. And I'm Kyle, and this is Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, This is a podcast where Trevor and I uh, pick out a movie that the other one hasn't seen, and this this case is an exception, but generally we pick out a movie the other one hasn't seen, and uh, get them to watch it, and they end up catching up on cinema. Um, This week is actually one that you recommended to me a long time ago, before we even had the podcast. Um, this This is true. This is The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened, from 2015, uh, directed by John Schnepp, uh, who's actually, he just passed away this last year, um, I think today, a year ago today. It is July 19th. Yeah. Wow. A year to the day. Uh, that was unintentional, folks, but yeah, uh, very unfortunate, because um, this is actually a f- pretty impressive documentary, um, and Looking at his filmography, uh, he's worn many, many hats in the industry, and uh, I know he was attached to a few other projects going forward before he passed, um, so it's kind of unfortunate that you know he, he passed when he did, because he probably had a lot more to offer. Um, but yeah, Kyle, why, why, did you, why did you pick this for our uh, July Movies About Making Movies Month here at Catching Up on Cinema? Well, for those of you not familiar with uh, what this documentary is about, um, in 1998, uh, Tim Burton, yes, Timmy Burton, was going to direct a movie about Superman starring Nicolas Cage. And just on that alone, we should have your attention because uh, this thing went through uh, a little bit of cat, well, the initial casting of Nick Cage and um, a lot of uh, concept art. And this was going to get. They, they were going to have this be a pretty big budget um, Superman movie before we were even really... This was before Spider-Man even. Um, Post-Batman, of course. Um, but I chose it because when I watched it the first time, I was like, I feel robbed. I feel like uh, we would have had this awesome, just cult classic Tim Burton Superman movie. Um, it... At the end, they ask, um, I think one of the producers or somebody, like, do you think this was going to be a financial success or do you think this was going to be a success? And my answer to that is, considering uh, all the movies that failed uh, <laughs> leading up to the pre-production of this film, I don't think this was going to be a financial success. I think it would have been uh, a success for the viewers, just people who would have who were interested in watching a Superman movie, I think people would have enjoyed it. It would have been unique to Tim Burton, um, but I don't think it would have been a box office smash. Uh, but yeah. yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say uh, that that's a tough call to make uh, because 1998, like late 1998 in particular, was a uh, I don't know. There was a lot going on, man. Because <laughs> um, the the big thing that popped into my head while you were talking just now and. Shows how much I was paying attention. Sorry, Kyle. No, that's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I looked up the release date for Blade because any conversation about modern superhero movies always comes back to Blade uh, because as much as like X-Men and Spider-Man are cited as like the, the heralds for this new era of superhero films uh, beginning in two, the year 2000, um, Blade was really the one that really got things rolling. Uh it was kind of a sleeper hit that came out of nowhere. Uh, it was a new line production, so you know, a smaller production uh, that really made a shit ton of money and got a lot of people talking. And that came out in August of 1998. Um, as far as I understand, what I remember from watching the documentary, uh, "The Death of Superman Lives," uh, just last night, uh, I own it. I've seen it many times, but I rewatched it in preparation for the show. 
Um, I think they were set to begin filming uh, in about April of 1998, which would mean that the film wouldn't be released until like 1999 or like deep into 1999 or maybe even the year 2000. And think about think about what the landscape would have been like by then, because um, Blade would have already been out. Mm-hmm. Um, Warner Brothers would be like, "Fuck, <laughs> like they made money. Hopefully, we can make money too." Hmm. And then, The Matrix came out in 1999. I think early 1999, if I remember, because I was I think I was still in school. It wasn't yet summer. Yeah, uh, it was March 1999. So you have Blade, you have The Matrix, and then very shortly thereafter you get X-Men, and then a couple years after that you get Spider-Man. So imagine Superman Lives coming out in the midst of all this. It would be it would be a fucking knockdown. It would be a slobber knocker <laughs> well, at, at the box office. The only reason like it I, would be a it would be a real fight, you know. The reason why I was hesitating on saying this would be a financial success is because Tim Burton was actually not going to have this be a hero movie he was actually going to show like the i guess the uh the more vulnerable side of spider of of a superman uh he, i think he he wouldn't have portrayed him in such a superhero light i think they were all thinking of like he hadn't even become superman yet from what i understand like he was unaware um i don't know if they got that deep into it um the the way this documentary is presented um we actually get interviews with three different writers that were attached to the project at various points in time and you can tell that the project never really coalesced in its entirety um so there's there's a lot of debate as to what would have what actually would have been shot yeah um i i know they wanted to focus on having clark kent like have clark kent be the the secret be the secret identity Mm -hmm. where where it's like superman's the truth and then Clark Kent is this mirage this like simulacrum of a person that he's really bad at being human <laughs> yeah. and I, th- I think there's a lot of novelty and a lot of interesting stuff that could have come out of that because I mean look at Nick Cage like w- if you watch this film and you actually see how he envisioned his Clark Kent looking he looks like fucking Tommy Wiseau yeah he does like posture and all he he looks like an alien imitating a human and when you think about it it's like huh you know that is one way you could spin that story, and it would be very interesting. Tommy was so. Tommy was so might be a human, or might be an alien impersonating a human as well. So he might be because his I don't know his personality quirks and like his behavior oftentimes has that feel to it. It's like this is a person that doesn't quite understand how people work. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying. He, well, maybe it's hard to tell. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if. Uh, I don't think that this was like before Superman because uh, all the action they talk about takes place in Metropolis and has him talking with Lois Lane and there's you know no interpretation of Superman that has ever had him start out in Metropolis. It's always you know Smallville first, it's mm-hmm. Kansas, then Metropolis, um, and then they they have that great scene where they talk about him uh, getting anxiety about proposing to her. Yeah. Um, but we, we'll get to that later, but I thought that was a really cool scene that I really would have loved to have seen. Um, yeah. So this format's going to be a little different because this isn't, um, this isn't very linear as far as a documentary goes. Like even the documentaries we've covered so far have been, you know, they, they go through the, like shooting of the movie or, 
lack thereof uh, <laughs> in Kung Fu Elliot. Um, oh, fuck. But yeah, so yeah, this again, uh, John Schnepp uh, directed this. Uh, he passed away a year ago. Um, we get we kind of get the rundown real quick at the top of like, yeah, 1998. Well, I, actually, I wrote this down. 1998, Tim Burton, Nick Cage. Um there were three scripts being uh, passed around. Uh, I forget who the other two was. Zack Snyder, one of them. I know Kevin Smith is ultimately the one they end up going with for a little while. Um, but I, I no, um, I'd have to. Brian Singer. My notes here. It was. It was. Oh, Brian. Brian, Brian Singer, Singer, who directed Superman Returns. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and who shat on on the uh, the now infamous production photo or pre-production photo rather of uh, Nick Cage in the the proposed Superman costume. Yeah, fuck that like, dude. That, <laughs> I mean, we don't talk about Brian Singer anymore, unfortunately. Well, no, not unfortunately. Care. Yeah, I've, I don't I've, give a shit. I've never really been a big fan of his movies. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, Kyle, you want to want to get started talking about the actual movie? Yeah. So we 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 start off at like Comic Con, and uh, I'm not sure what year this was uh, filmed outside Comic Con, but. Uh, the director's kind of flagging down people with Superman um, shirts on, and if you don't, if you've never heard of this, you must be like going through your head like Nick Cage as Superman, because he's he's like a cultural icon. We all know him. We all know the stupid movies he's done. Lesser, like we know more about the dumb movies he's done than the good movies. And we actually tried our best to cover some of his unknown movies uh, that we'd never yeah. seen. Uh, we're, we're Cage fans, and when you told me Nick Cage was going to be Superman, I'm like, that is fascinating. I have to know about this. <laughs> so he, he's asking, because a lot of people don't know about this until this documentary came out, I'm assuming. Um, he's asking them, like, what do you think about Nick Cage as Superman? And people are like, oh, I don't know about that. And everyone's like, you know what? He's a good actor. I think that he could, you know, pull it off pretty well. Um what do you think? You honestly like? Do you? Th- what kind of performance do you think this would have been? Do you think this would have been? Um, I think he would have been maybe doing like a something akin to like Matchstick Men. Okay. Uh, something quirky, something weird, but uh, for the most part dialed down. Yes, that's I think, important. I think. <laughs> I don't think he was going to cage out at any point in the film, except maybe when he's fighting Doomsday or, um, I mean, he gets, I mean, the title of the movie is Superman lives. And that's because we're, we're following the, the, not entirely, but we're following the comic arc, the, the death and return of Superman basically, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a very important comic that I'm going to, I'm going to rant about in a minute here. But, um, in that, of course, Superman dies and comes back. Um, and that offers plenty of opportunities for Cage to get very physical with his performance. You know, he gets a dramatic death scene. Uh, I'm guessing he finds a way to flip out when he's coming back from the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wears a variety of costumes such that, like, his character arc in some ways is similar to that of Iron Man in this movie. Um, where his, his costume is kind of in, indicative of his character growth at several points in the film. Um but yeah, I, I think for the most part it would have been an understated performance, but a weird one. Mm-hmm. Um, not not him like gesticulating wildly and making crazy faces, but him having like maybe like goofy facial tics and having a weird speech pattern and being like, probably. You know, it's funny when, when you watch the test footage of him and Tim Burton talking to each other. You can tell they have an affinity for one another. Like mm-hmm. they they see 
they they get each other like yeah. they seem like they could do great things together and i feel like nick cage secretly though was planning on just doing an imitation of tim burton for his performance because <laughs> <laughs> even his posture in in the in the scenes where he's parading around in the superman costume you can kind of see him like doing the well, thing and then when he's talking about the hair length like tim burton's like no i i think we should cut it and like, no no tim i i, I think this is perfect well, <laughs> well i feel like uh that would have been he would have been doing tim burton justice because even tim burton wanted to explore the character how he identified with the character as he's like i've always felt kind of like an outsider like i've always felt kind of like an alien and he was going to bring his interpretation of superman of what he might think superman feels like through nick cage what better way to try to personify that than to go through the person making the film it would have been a good idea honestly it would have been one of those things where like break down your best character your favorite characters or your most iconic characters like i was trying to you know identify with the director tim burton and a great man and uh I, I just tried to get what i think how he felt about the character, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a cult classic. We never got it. It would have been a cult classic. Uh, <laughs> but uh, who else at the time could have played Superman? Tim uh, Tim Burton's Superman. Not there's plenty of hunks with a strong chin with great hairline that could have done this. I'm sure. But who else could have played Tim Tim Burton's Superman as he wanted it? Ooh, that's a tough one. Because um, I'm struggling to think of anyone in 1998 uh, who could have who could have done that. Um, Leo still had like, a baby face. Uh, a Fleck yeah, Leo was, was still too baby faced. Be- a Fleck was Johnny uh, Depp. No, it would. Johnny Depp doesn't have a strong chin. He doesn't. He he just doesn't. Well, also, no amount of arm twisting, I think, at that point could have gotten him to do it. Because he doesn't, he doesn't like being that guy. No, like he doesn't want to be the hero. He wants to be the monster. And yeah. Superman, as much as you try to make him like an outsider, which I, I'm confident they could definitely portray him as as that. Um, at the end of the day, he's still Superman. He still has to put on the costume and be a hero. And I don't think Johnny Depp's interested in being that guy. Um, and I, I like the, I like pick him picking Cage too because I don't, I don't need another handsome Superman like Christopher Reeves was just super handsome he like he just very much matches the comic book character cage i'm not saying is an unattractive dude it's just he doesn't he's not a hunk he's not he's not the dream hunk that you would have uh, uh as he, has, he has too much he has too much character yeah um, in his face it's he's non-traditional i mean there's a clip of him accepting his oscar statue and he was a fucking dime piece at that moment in time. <laughs> like, holy shit, he was he was looking pretty good. That did was his Cameron Poe days, basically. Was that his uh, adaptation? Did he get it for adaptation, or what was it for? I think it was uh, Leaving Las Vegas. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Because, yeah, he played the alcoholic. That's that's what it was. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so people at Comic-Con are kind of indecisive. I can't think of anybody from 1998 who could have done it. I'm sure somebody out there knows. Uh, Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> oh, actually, actually. Jeez, Jeff, I mean, uh, I just, uh, I, I just kind of spit that out. Too tall. The, Superman is tall, though. He's too tall, though. Like he's, but, he but doesn't that works. He's gang, he's gangly. He's weird. <laughs> he makes you uncomfortable. I'll, I'll think about it afterwards and see. We'll, we'll, I'll think of one as soon as we get done recording. I'm like, fuck, it was, it was him. Um, but now, nah. uh, yeah. So. 
We have uh, three script three scripts being passed around uh, to do this movie. Kevin Smith's. Who were the other two? Uh, I think it, the other one was Brian Singer, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Dan Gilroy picked up the script later. Um, I I get a little confused as to the as to the evolution of the script because I followed I followed the the arc of the production. Mm. Um, the early goings, I don't know who was vying it doesn't for really the, matter. the the position early on, but yeah, Kevin Smith was the one who got the gig to begin with, but and this it, was, it was taken away from him. This was after Clerks, and I think after Dog yeah Dogma, I think was like ninety six or ninety seven, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe he was filming at that time. I'm not sure, but it was definitely after Clerks. I think uh, he was. I think it was before he started Dogma because he actually references a moment. Oh when no, he was working on Dogma. Yeah, not uh, he had already done Chasing Amy. That's what it was. Chasing Amy was done there with, and I think Mallrats was around this time too. Um, but yeah, so he uh, he's gonna end up doing it, and John Giant Spider Peters, uh, you yeah. may know him as the producer <laughs> from Wild Wild West and Batman and a few other uh, gems. Uh, yes, he's the, uh, I guess, the executive producer on this from uh, Warner Brothers. He's the one kind of selling it. He's like, yeah, we, we should do this uh, Superman, or either that or Kevin Smith, super, like, all up on it. Um, the producer at the time was like, I don't know about you doing, a, like, a comic book movie. And even Kevin Smith's like, this was before, like, comic book movies just, like, shot off. Like, we're going, like, through the wall making money. And so it's weird to hear like a producer like, I don't know about this comic book character stuff. It doesn't seem like it's going to make a lot of money. Hmm. It's like, well, let's think about that for a second. It's like we've we've had superhero film properties for for decades at this point, even in the 80s. And generally they do pretty well. Um, it wasn't until the 80s that like things really started to fall apart, and that's because they were horribly mismanaged and didn't have enough capital pumped into them to you know be actual legit productions. Like Superman 4 is is why everybody was allergic to Superman at this point in time, uh, because that was a canon production, and uh, yeah, it wasn't very good, and it was produced on the cheap and on the quick, and they gave. Christopher Reeve way too much creative control. I'm not saying it's his fault that it's a bad movie. Not at all. Although <laughs> is Marlon Brando of... is Marlon Brando in one of no. the bad ones? No, he's only in the good ones. Okay. Okay. I was <laughs> say, if, you, if you need your scapegoat, there you go. No, it was because it was, you know, it was produced by the Canon company and uh it just it just wasn't good. <laughs> and uh a lot of their money went directly into Gene Hackman's pockets because I think by that time, like, they they had to, like, play any card they could. And it's like, let's bring back that guy who we couldn't get back for the third one. <laughs> um, let's have Superman fight a Chippendales dancer on the moon and have Gene Hackman dub his voice for reasons. Um, Kevin Smith was going to throw in, like, four villains, I think, into this movie. Just this one... This one movie he was gonna put uh, like Doomsday, like everybody. Uh, yeah, which... um, the early chunk of this documentary um, consists of some interviews with some really heavy hitters in in like the comic book world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Smith is is actually one of those. He has written some Batman comics and whatnot, and he's a super fan. And he's he's a super he's fan. Una- like, yeah, he he's not afraid to admit that. Um, at the time he was, and it was actually really interesting to hear him talk about 
uh, his experience in dealing with Hollywood producers. Mm-hmm. Because at that time, it's like you you kind of kept your your nerd card in your wallet. You didn't, you didn't flash it. You didn't. You didn't flash it at the door to get perks. You you kept it. You kept it under your hat. You know, um, and so it wasn't until he heard he heard rumor that oh hey there's a Superman project going around, and then I think one of the producers or maybe his agent or somebody like said hey Kevin like would you be interested in working on Superman and he's like <gasps> <laughs> but his actual reaction was like uh, why why yes. But yes, I, I, would I would very much enjoy I would like that. to do that. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I think I could do that. But inside, it's like, oh my god, this is dream control, dream come true kind of shit. And yeah, like he admits on camera that his his script was a fan service script. Like he was just going balls out, putting in references to comics, uh, pa- like past and present. He was going to stuff it full of DC universe characters that. He probably was, nobody at the time would know about but he would and he'd love it <laughs> he came up with the crossover he was gonna put in uh, i think batman in there he pu- he was gonna put in somebody else i'm like that's fucking genius like that would have been genius at the time because then they would have had their spinoffs if it had been uh, financially successful and they could have done what, basically what the mcu did um but john peters uh we have to kind of talk about him a little bit because he He's important for this documentary. Uh, he is the producer. He is, if you don't know anything about John Peters, like I said, he's produced some, well, I'm not going to say a lot of great movies, but movies you know the name of. Um, he uh, was formerly the hairdresser for Barbara Streisand, uh, and he somehow got into producing movies. And he dresses it. He's like, yeah, uh, people, people don't really... Uh, think I'm legit because I was a hairdresser before, but he's like, now nah, fuck that. Um, I mean, kind of props to him. I'm like, I, he's done some successful things. Uh, he lies a lot, but, you know. By the way, that <laughs> phone call, that phone call that he takes in this documentary, was that a fake phone call? Uh, I don't know. It, it kind of goes all over the place, and, and it ends with, I love you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know who he was talking to, but it... it ends unexpectedly with an i love you yeah yeah i i wouldn't put it past him to arrange to have his secretary call him so he can look busy he seems yeah he seems like the kind of guy that would say okay so like an hour into this interview i'm gonna need you to call me uh just so i can you know make it look like i actually have shit going on yeah, I don't think he's got. I mean, if much you w- take on. one look at this man's quaffed hair, and you can tell he gives a shit about appearances. He's wearing the, the he's a wearing he's wearing Adidas sweatpants while he's doing this too. I noticed this time. I'm like, you couldn't put on he some real pants. He didn't get up though. No, he didn't get up. <laughs> I don't know. We're not able to see he my didn't pants, get up for right? Nothing. Uh, yeah. So uh, Kevin Smith talks about his meeting with him. He's like, okay. Uh, apparently, uh, what John Peters told him was like, okay, we're gonna do this movie. He's like, one thing. No flying. He's like, I don't want to see Superman flying. It's all. It just looks bad. The wires look bad. It never looks real. So no flying. And Kevin Smith's like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Uh, and then he's like, no suit. And then uh, he says, you have to throw in a giant spider. Yes. <laughs> now, if you've seen Wild Wild West, you know that that director was told the exact same thing about the giant spider because he finally got his giant spider. But Kevin yeah. Smith was like, yeah. okay, giant spider. Okay. Um, these are the three things. So that I don't want. I don't want to get away from the giant spider just yet. <laughs> so yeah, those were the stipulations. 
Which John Peters denies, by the way. I mean, he he admits to the first two, and no, actually, he had, he he had, he owned up to all of them. No, he, he said, said he, he didn't. He said, he said no flying, no suit, and this giant spider. Like they they agreed that it wouldn't be called a giant spider, but there would be some sort of giant beast he fights. Yeah. Um, but the thing about the giant spider is that I don't know how much familiarity you have with like Kevin Smith's stuff he does outside of movies. Um, but the giant spider story, the John Peters giant spider story is like in a lot of ways responsible for his, like all of his current success, at, like in all of his endeavors in life. <laughs> um, cause I guess he, like he has a podcast now, a very prolific podcast. It used to be called fat man on Batman, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great fucking title. And then I think they changed it to fat man beyond. Um, which is also a great fucking title. Yeah, those are good. <laughs> but in, a, I think it was the late 2000s, uh, he started doing uh, like speaking tours at like college campuses and whatnot. Yeah, an evening with Kevin paid, Smith. Paid, yeah. And uh, the centerpiece of his, his stand-up, basically, was this story about the John Peters experience and the giant spider. Um, such And it's like followed him throughout his career. It's like this story. It's, it's like... Uh, What's his face? Joe Rogan's friend with the story of the machine or whatever. Oh yeah, Bert. <laughs> Brent, Brent Crystals. Uh, Bert Kreischer. Yeah. Brent Crystals. It's similar to that, or it, it, it's like it's that it's the thing he's known for, and uh, he's parlayed it to great success. Uh, to the extent that uh, wh- what was it? Um, Superman Doomsday. It was the first uh, Warner Brothers animated like direct to DVD Superman movie. Um, I bought it because it was it was new. It was like 2009, 2008 or something. Um, Kevin Smith has a cameo in it in a scene where there is a giant spider <laughs> where he basically just says a comic book guy esque thing like giant spider yawn, something like that. But, you know, it, it was something that Warner Brothers was very much aware of. And I thought it was kind of cute. Uh, yeah, so yeah, you may gonna, continue. Sorry, <laughs> I'm gonna have a lot of anecdotes like that for this. Sorry. So yeah, we got now Kevin Smith's like, okay, I got to put a giant spider in here. He's gonna do Doomsday. He's gonna do Brainiac. He's gonna do a bunch of you know fan service because he's a fanboy first and foremost. Uh, he's gonna just try to shoehorn as many char- I guess as many characters as he can. He's gonna do some crossovers. Or uh, yeah, he was going to do crossovers. Uh, John Peters wanted to. <laughs> wanted to, yeah. Um, I like that he, they're like, uh, John Peter's assistant calls Kevin Smith. He's like, hey, uh, John wants to meet with you uh, tomorrow. He's like, okay. He's like, he wants you to read the script to him. And he's like, really? He's like, I got to read the script to him? He's like, yeah, totally serious. You're going to read the script to him tomorrow. Um, And he has a funny story about him sitting on the back of the cat, like sitting on a couch and then making like the director frame that they sh- do before they shoot. And he's trying to picture it. But my favorite John Peters quote is, I'm not a good reader. Uh, <laughs> he, just, <laughs> he just says, I'm not a good reader. I'm like, oh, so you, you don't know how to read or you're not good at it. You're illiterate or you just don't know how to. Might be dyslexic. I don't know. I might be being mean, but I just thought it was kind of funny. Um, no, I mean it is kind of funny, and yeah, just the visual of it needs to be said. Um, most of this movie is is conducted in interviews, uh, usually one on ones between John Schnepp and whoever it is he's talking with. Um, there are there is a lot of like visualizations though, 
like essentially like reenactments of things that were never enacted in the first place mm-hmm. uh, so like the uh so like uh, the dc character cameos that you were talking about um they actually do like a visualization of what that could have been like mm-hmm. and it's basically kevin smith wa- telling us like narrating the scene and there's like a it's obviously produced on the cheap um but basically it's just a scene where like batman appears in the equivalent of like time times square on a big giant tv and Mm -hmm. kevin smith does like a drunk history thing where he's he's saying what he's picturing batman would say to the public and then an actor dressed in a bat suit uh mouths what he's saying and it's pretty cool and they do that several times in the movie um but it needs to be said that a lot of the editing when we're we're doing this crosstalk where like one person is telling a story involving the other person that we're like cutting back to interview footage of uh, so Kevin Smith is telling us like how this how this reading of the script went down with John Peters and he's like miming what John Peters was doing on his couch and like, he just like tilts his head back and he's like yeah he put up his, his director hands like he's making a frame like he's he's putting a, a cinema screen up on his ceiling so he could play the movie out up on his, on the ceiling while I'm reading to him <laughs> and then and then he tells us that John Peters said whoa 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 hang on he, he's in Antarctica it's like he's at the Fortress of Solitude there's got to be a fight <laughs> Kevin Smith is like in the middle of reading the script. He's like, "It's the fortress. It's of the fortress solitude. of solitude." <laughs> but John Peters was very adamant that there be polar bears, and one of my favorite quotes from him was, "There's nothing more ferocious more fer- than a three thousand pound, ten foot, twelve uh, foot polar bear." <laughs> yeah. Unless you're an alien yeah, he, that can smash it. <laughs> yeah, um, apparently he just didn't care about that. Like. The way he's like citing these figures, like three thousand pound, ten foot, twelve foot polar bear, like you can tell that he probably just watched National Geographic like that day or the night before, and it was just burned into his brain. That's like, oh my god, polar bears are savage. We got to put polar bears in this movie. And yeah, he wanted. I couldn't tell if they're supposed to be like bodyguards for Superman, <laughs> or if they're going to attack him because. It, the script went through several revisions apparently because John Schnepp tells us that like one script had no polar bears, one had had them being killed by Brainiac, one had them there but they were statues, and it's, it was just this weird little detail that you can tell way too much energy went went into. <laughs> Are there polar bears in Antarctica? I forget wh- how it works. Because um, all would... I know is they don't live with penguins. They're they're on opposite ends of the planet. Okay, so there's, yeah, I think the polar bears are up north and not down south. I don't think they would be in Antarctica. I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to Google that, but I'm just thinking polar bears might be up at the uh, North Pole, maybe. So uh, I guess because John Peters had worked with uh, Tim Burton a couple of times and they made uh, Warner Brothers a shit ton of money, uh, they were able to convince yeah, uh, Bat- Batman and Batman Returns. And what was the number figure that you threw out there before yeah, we recorded? So this is this is gonna come up again later, but uh, I did the I crunched some numbers while I was at work today. Uh, so <laughs> busy day, but, yeah. <laughs> Yes, uh, Batman 1989 made a shit ton of money. Uh, Batman Returns made about three times as much that was put in. Like it made it made you know pretty good money. Uh, between just those two movies in '89 and '92, they brought in uh, f- between the two 563.3 uh, million dollars. Uh, a solid 
nearly half a billion. And adjusted for inflation, according to the internet, this was about a billion dollars back then. Like this was these were two smashing successes. Um, oh yeah. So this is like the dream team. Like this is all right. John Peters, Tim Burton, back at it again. They're gonna fucking knock this one out of the park. And it's kind of uh, I can see how frustrating it was for them uh, near the end when this eventually just doesn't move forward. Because like, well, where's the trust? If I mean, these guys have done it before. Don't you think they can knock out another another success? But well, we'll get there. Um, so yeah, so Tim Burton is uh, agreed to do the movie, and uh, <laughs> uh, Kevin Smith gets a call, and he's like, they're like, so listen, Tim Burton's gonna be uh, directing the movie, and he he's just like, oh, that's awesome. Am am I still working on the movie? And they're like, absolutely not. No, <laughs> you're out, man. <laughs> and I'm like. I, I can yeah. imagine taking that <laughs> taking that away from him. Like he's such a nerd. He's probably so excited. That's all he could talk about. Probably was just like he's doing the Superman movie. It's gonna be fucking awesome. Just working on it. Well, I mean, think think of where Kevin Smith is at now. Mm. Like he he really has yet to. I don't think he ever will make a make like one of these blockbuster type movies. Like as no. a writer or otherwise. Like so that 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 was like the closest he ever got to touching touching the sun or the brass ring or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Uh, so yeah, that must have been devastating. Obviously, he went on to you know do just fine for himself, but um, yeah, that probably hurt. And uh, I don't know if he, well, I know he saw the movie because of course he saw the movie. He's in the movie. Of course movie. he saw the movie. Yeah. Um, John John Peters uh, like is pretty cold about it. Actually, he actually just straight up says Kevin was an amateur. He yeah. says he just wasn't a great writer. I think he tries to like pad it a little bit and say like at that point in time, like he was mm-hmm. an amateur. But the word does come out there, and yeah, that that must be hurtful. Um, but yeah, at this point, Kevin Smith is out. Uh, so the comic book guy has been removed from the project. Which, based on what you and I have been talking about already about uh, Tim Burton's vision for the character. It's probably a good thing that a comic book guy isn't on set to whisper in his ear because they would probably clash very badly, very badly um, and not, not have much in common in terms of their opinions of the character. Um, And uh, John Peters does say that uh, Tim Burton was the first choice, of course, because, because of the aforementioned success that he had with him. And also just his, his confidence in him as a, as a visualist. Like, mm-hmm. the one the one thing that you know you're getting especially from 90s tim burton is you're getting a handsome fucking film aesthetically pleasing to say the least yes aesthetically pleasing um but yeah then i think at this point we get to go to tim burton's house and the second you see it you're like yep that's tim burton's that's house. tim burton's house, <laughs> that's tim burton's house. <laughs> um i think uh i don't know if this is still the same house i i read that he and helena bottom carter uh, lived in the same house, but it was two separate houses. So she had her own, like, they were attached, but she had her own house, he had his own house. And there's a couple of times uh, he kind of looks over over his shoulder a little bit, like over to the side, like there's kids running around or something. Like he just kind of does a little look or like there's somebody in the other room. But yeah, the 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 place where he's sitting and doing the interview, I'm assuming is his... I'm his Los Angeles home. I'm not sure. I don't think it's his. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he isn't a uh, home in uh, England as well. I'm assuming that's what that was the yeah. uh, the double house. Um, this one probably isn't even a house he <laughs> frequents that often. Uh, but it's just kind of a. It's dark. Like it's definitely what you would picture a Tim Burton house to be dark. But like 
it looks like it's in a room that he's never used. He's like, yeah, there's like a, a skeleton on the on the couch, and then there's like a little gargoyle thing behind me. It was just a yeah. It's it's, a, it's kind of a it's kind of in disarray. Like it's not as curated as you you might think. Like like when I think Tim Burton, I think like his home would probably look like an art installation or something. Like mm-hmm. every room would be dressed in some fashion. But yeah, this one's kind of haphazard. It's not well lit at all. And yeah, it has this fucking like seahorse gargoyle and a skeleton on the couch. And uh, the one thing that was really cool is he had a lot of B-movie posters, like pretty much all of Ed Wood's movie posters, a whole bunch of Christopher Lee and and Peter Cushing posters and stuff. And I was like, that's pretty fucking cool. Um, But yeah, like everything about it, I was like, yeah, that's Tim Burton's house. (laughs) If you look at his hair... Yeah, I could see him being disheveled, like just having a, a mess of a house, like not even that nice. Yeah, I mean, and also if you look at like the construction of a lot of his, uh, a lot of his protagonists in a lot of his movies, like they tend to have that way about them. Like I think of Edward Scissorhands or uh, Pee Wee Herman, even where it's kind of like a cluttered environment that's a little bit out of control, but they're not unhappy about it like they're they're at home in that environment it's like danny devito it's like the penguin in the sewer it's like it's it's not an organized environment for sure but he seems he seems cool with it <laughs> so if you want to see cluttered look at guillermo del toro's house if you ever find a clip i forget who if it was andy from conan o'brien somebody goes into his house like his house is insane i would love to just spend i think 30 seconds i could steal enough things to be happy out of his house um <laughs> in just one room i would just be like boom, 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 get it got it actually 10 seconds i think that's all i'd need uh but yeah sorry <laughs> be like one uh, of those uh one of those supermarket game shows where that you get like 30 seconds to throw everything in your cart or whatever <laughs> yep yep um but yeah uh we we sit down for an interview with tim burton and uh, it's him and john schnapp like I said, it's not very well lit. And, uh, yeah, at this point, Burton lays out a lot of the, the details. We we already know. Like, if you know anything about Tim Burton, most of this is not going to be news to you. But in, in context, it's important to the narrative of the documentary. He, just, he tells us that, yeah, he was a misfit. He identified with comic book heroes because, you know, he was he was the kid in the band hall. He was an outsider. In fact, he even uses the phrase, I, I felt like I was an alien. And case in point, here's a photo of me as a kid in a like a skeleton costume my mom made for me that is bizarre and perfectly adorable. <laughs> if you want to use a, um, uh, a John Hughes character to define Tim Burton, he's Ali Sheedy in The Breakfast Club. Noted. That works. <laughs> um, um, so at this point, uh, we, we reach the point of the documentary where the imaginary film, the film that was never made, is essentially reaching reaching the like the pre-production stage. So now we're 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 uh, getting the band together. We're getting a bunch of concept artists and our, our writing team assembled. And uh, one of the first one of the first artists, uh, actually, he's the production designer um, that we get introduced to here is uh, Rick Heinrichs, uh, who will make several appearances in the documentary. Um, and we get to see some archival footage of him uh, in school with Tim Burton. They went to, oh, yeah. apparently, Cal, Cal Arts together. And we get to see the two of them give a little bit of an interview in front of the camera. They're both baby-faced as fuck. Tim Burton looks <laughs> he looks like such a little kid. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's so shy on camera, but they made a stop-motion animated film together called Vincent in 1982. We get to see some footage of that. It's about a little boy who 
is has like some sort of schizophrenia where he thinks he's Vincent Price and occasionally morphs into him and it looks pretty fucking cool but that's how the two of them came together and uh Mr. Heinrichs is a very accomplished production designer you'll find his name attached to many many big projects uh, we also meet Michael Anthony Jackson uh, the fellow with the shades um he was a concept artist on Batman Returns, and the big the big thing he throws out there as soon as we meet him is that he actually quit product he quit pre production work on The Matrix, uh, just to work on this this show, uh, Superman Lives. Um, so that kind of sucks for him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I bet he's kicking himself over that. Um, yeah. Do you think his nose bleeds? Do you think his nose bleeds every time he sees Keanu Reeves? He's just like motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) I could have been designing your jacket. (laughs) I could be rich. I could have been doing it. Yeah. Instead, I had to draw fucking Superman for two years for no fucking reason. (laughs) Some fucking producer kept wrestling me with his fucking kids in the room. Yeah, for real. He probably got like a damaged spine out of it, and like probably didn't get paid as well and didn't even get to see any of his drawings come to life on the screen that must really suck and that's that's the whole thesis of this whole thing is that like you'll you'll see in watching this documentary that a lot of love and effort went into trying to get this done and to have it go nowhere to have it just hit a brick wall out of nowhere must have really sucked because um, yeah as, as humans we're, we're programmed to like have a narrative structure like think there's supposed to be a third act to everything and when there is no third act it's like what the what what (laughs) what what is this (laughs) kyle do you remember how the the title of this film came about uh superman lives uh didn't john peters want to name it something and kevin smith's like no that's not right i can't remember well the original script um was titled superman reborn Mm -hmm. and pretty much everybody rolled their eyes at that because it's it's just unimaginative it just doesn't feel right um kevin smith actually titled it superman lives and he said it was in tribute or actually ripped off from uh fletch lives fletch lives yeah he thought it was because he liked fletch and he liked the title (laughs) and i think it has a ring to it i think superman lives is a is a better title than superman reborn at the very least um yeah, I'm just going to keep running down the list of concept artists because we're not going to talk about all of them extensively, but they deserve some some form of praise here because they all did great work. But, uh, Pete Von Schally was a creature designer for something called The Menagerie that I'm sure was one of your favorite parts of the documentary. Called. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did enjoy that. Yeah. And uh, one of the more important personalities who we will actually talk about uh, at some point here is uh, Sylvain Despretz. Uh, he doesn't say what country he's from. I assume maybe a French-speaking country like Belgium or France. Um, anyway, his his thing is that he's a European schooled artist, so he's European both in in like blood and in spirit, and in art theory. And he was hired on specifically for that reason because he would bring a different perspective to the table. Because they had comic book guys. In fact, I forget the name of the the fellow that they got who actually drew a lot of Superman comics at one point, um, working in the concept art department. But they wanted this guy because his artistic discipline was radically different from everyone else. And you know, Tim Burton's into weird shit. So if we can get a different perspective, we'll we'll definitely want him around. And he he was a little cagey 
about getting involved in the project because of that because he had no interest in comic books or superman um but one look at his art and it's like yeah i i would want him in on my team <laughs> he's a fantastic artist and uh being european he's quite blunt about some of his opinions later on in the film and like i said we'll come back to him for sure um and then yeah there's a whole host of other people um steve johnson was the fellow that was doing the prosthetics work and uh you want to start talking about the suit kyle because I, I know that's that's actually like the centerpiece of the movie in a lot of ways um it's he a worked huge on part pros- yeah yeah, I mean it's the thing that like like you had like you had said before, like a lot of folks probably didn't have any clue that uh Nick Cage was ever on deck to be Superman at any point. Um but even the people who did know that, really all we knew was that one photo. That was all I knew when I was young. Uh as I saw the photo in like a magazine or something and I was like, Oh, well, that's weird and then you move on. Uh so going off of that photo all you had was the wig and the suit and the fact that nick cage would be wearing it uh, so i can see why they put so much time into digging up that archival footage and really really like talking extensively with the people who actually built the damn thing but yeah steve johnson uh was he was one of the guys that did the the prosthetics and animatronics for independence day and species mm. uh, so he's quite accomplished especially at that point in time when uh most folks would agree that like i don't know like the mid to late 90s were kind of like peak animatronics in the movie industry because it was like cgi couldn't could not be relied on to do all the heavy lifting for like close-ups and whatnot so you you still needed those guys and the technology was was getting to the point where it's like yeah we get some flexibility now it's not like before where we had to like hide everything like we can really get shit done with these with these amazing practical effects but now now we've gotten to the point where you can phase that out in favor of cgi um but yeah we should talk about the suit go <laughs> uh yeah the uh the suit um i don't know how to describe it so think um schumacher's batman or maybe schumacher's robin but i feel like the the suit itself was actually more attached to the skin more felt it fit more like latex like it was actually like a rubber suit um the suit itself was going to be kind of innovative at the time like it was uh it was they were taking um oh i can't think of what it's called uh they come up with a uh, a way of i don't know how to describe it this is this is difficult to describe um we're actually skipping ahead a bit like diving right into the suit but um so they much like much like Iron Man, the idea was to have uh, the suit go through multiple iterations throughout the narrative of the film. So Superman would start out the film with his tradi- like more traditional costume. Uh, he would die, and then in order to bring him back, he'd have to wear like a regeneration suit of some sort. They would be kind of like an exoskeleton. And then he'd transition to something else and something else and something else, and then finally he'd end up in like the almost almost the black suit that superman wore in the early 90s in the comics um but yeah similar to to how the narrative was supposed to go um in the documentary we actually get to see the the production crew um go through multiple iterations and trying to come up with the best way to render the suit and like we get to see them use a multitude of materials to try to get this thing to work right 
because like the first the first iteration of it it's it's like a silicone test suit that has um the the one guy who's wearing it refers to it as buckling buckling yes yeah where he's he like bends over he lifts his his arm up and you can see like the seams of the thing like bending and it looks unnatural like it doesn't look like it's fitting properly and it looks it looks like it needs some work um and then they do like another iteration of it where it looks like it's almost made of hot glue or something yeah um and it has it has the right look to it like it, it they're definitely onto something it's like semi transparent um but you can tell it's a pain in the ass to put on and take off and it doesn't seem to have any mobility to it uh, the one oh man the one guy that they they put in it for the first test looks like he's in agony yeah like like he he looks directly into the camera and actually says like Nick Nick Cage if you're out there like this is what pain looks like <laughs> like uh, it looks e- it looks like there's like six people trying to wrestle him into this thing it's like guys I don't know if it's worth it yeah he should have talked to Michelle Pfeiffer on the set of uh, Batman Returns because she would have told you oh Tim doesn't care if you're uncomfortable in your suit you'll be close to suicide uh, wearing your costume if he if he wants you to wear it he kind of I didn't right? he, I mean. Um, <laughs> It's very glossy, is the way I would describe it. Uh, the Superman costume. Um, I, it's it's interesting because the the Catwoman suit was very glossy as well. I'm trying to think. It's, I mean, hers was supposed to be leather, like a really glossy, like oh, look, look like pleather more than anything. But hers hers had almost like an S and M kind of vibe to it. And I mean, in the oh, in the film, it was supposed to be made of like a raincoat that she sewed together. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's supposed to be like rubbery and kind of you know, yeah, it's supposed to be a little bit kinky. This one doesn't have that same like, like, outright like sexual vibe to it for sure. It has a <laughs> bit more of like a function, a functional look to it. I mean, it, it still looks cumbersome. Like you can tell, it's probably not very comfortable to wear. But um, iridescent is the is the word that everybody that helped design this thing throws out there at some point um certain certain drafts of the suit that they made um almost look like like the inside of like a a conch or a a conch shell like an like think like the interior of an oyster or something it has that like Mm -hmm. rainbow effect when it catches the light a certain way and uh they do some sort of process that uh, i don't know what the fuck it is but they call it vacuum forming basically it's it's like putting together scales and like sewing them together using uh, transparent staples and it creates like this this interesting scaling pattern that catches the light in a really fascinating way it's really intricately detailed like inside and out and then they have like led lights running up and down the suit yeah. uh, it, it looks like something out of tron it's it's nuts uh, it's it's pretty really cool, bitching but <laughs> Yeah, yeah it, they're not doing what they didn't. It, it's nice. I think it's one of the things I liked about the documentary was just seeing the, how much time and effort and love they're putting into just this suit, and to think that Green Lantern was like, "Oh, we're just gonna just gonna do CGI. We're not even gonna make a suit. We're just literally gonna put uh, Ryan Reynolds' head on a CGI suit. That's it." Oh man, funny you should mention that because I, I like I just watched a, a video about um, it's like composite artists uh, it's the corridor crew i may as well just name drop them um so they're actually cgi composite artists by trade and it's them 
reacting to footage of actual finished productions and one of the films that they they screened was green lantern and they gave their thoughts on to like as to why this is not working and you don't have to have a background in cgi compositing to to nail it um, yeah. but it was interesting to hear what they had to say and uh honestly like the suit isn't so much the problem it's it's like it's the stupid fucking like domino mask that they put on him it's like uh that just doesn't look right guys like it, it really just doesn't look right <laughs> um but let's backpedal a moment and uh i mean the suit is going to be something we revisit constantly throughout this documentary because like i said it's like the thing that probably got this entire production off the ground because uh it needs to be said this was actually i think uh, uh a patreon production if i remember right it was crowdfunded was it um this this documentary was oh yeah uh and and again so basically that photo of nick cage was what got people to open their wallets it's like i want to know more about that i want to know if there's footage to go with that photo and there certainly was and if not for this documentary it would probably not have been made public at any point um yeah a fellow by the name of wesley strick uh is the second writer involved in the production uh, he was brought he first started working with tim burton at least he says um on the set of batman returns um for like on-set rewrites and whatnot and i guess he and tim burton developed you know, like a, a partnership of sorts like they seem to they seem to get each other and in fact he speaks for tim burton a couple of times and says some pretty shocking things late in the documentary um but yeah he gets involved with superman after kevin smith gets the boot uh Right up front, he says he's not really into comics. Um, <laughs> apparently, Tim Burton didn't want to even talk about Kevin Smith's script. Uh, so that right there tells you how much interest Tim Burton had in doing like a traditional Superman story. Um, and yeah, both of them, apparently, both the Strick and Tim Burton, um, expressed a lot of concerns about working with John Peters again, because I guess he's a bit of a terror, as we'll come to learn. Um, but yeah, at this point, like as we're assembling our team so we have a bunch of artists we have a writer on board we've got like one of the hottest directors of his time um now we're doing casting and uh there's a lot of just like with michael keaton there's a lot of controversy about select the selection of nicholas cage and uh they in the documentary they they use a lot of clips and like newspaper clippings and stuff to point out that yeah uh, this fervor is nothing new um, this seems to happen every time Batman gets Batman or Superman or whoever gets cast. Like, there's always some sort of outrage. And now that we have the internet, it's just dialed up to 11. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kyle, um, this is this is like the he doesn't drop the statistic here. Um, but this is where John Peters uh, mentions his uh, his background as a street fighter for the first time in the documentary. Yes. He does yes. so with the utmost confidence. Um, just very casually, he's like... Uh, so this is in context. This is in reference to uh, him casting Michael Keaton as Batman. Like, this is his justification as to why he thought Michael Keaton would be a good choice. And he says, I knew, being a street fighter my entire life, that you could gauge the toughness of your opponent by the look in their eyes. And Michael Keaton had that look. <laughs> he just kind of casually throws it out there. <laughs> Being a street um, fighter I, my entire life. Yeah. 
if he would have just not said that, if he would have said that Michael Keaton has something in his eyes where he seems like a nice guy, but he can also flip a switch, which is absolutely true yeah. because he's played both villain and and he's played good guy. Because yeah, he has those qualities. He's very funny, but he can also turn it. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, that's that's a legit reason for casting him as Batman. And like you said, uh, there's always going to be casting Batman. There's always going to be like, oh God, him really? Well, I mean. Not to not to date the podcast like immediately the day it's released, but I mean we're in the midst of it right now with the the announcement of a, a lady James Bond like only a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean it's I don't think it's been confirmed that she's actually going to be playing James Bond. She might just be 007. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, every every time a major franchise character gets recast or or cast for that matter, uh, there's always going to be a, a loud reaction to it. Uh, so I mean, it just goes to show you that maybe, you sh- like, if you're the guy in charge of the production, and you know it's your money, maybe just fucking do it. <laughs> like, people are gonna be upset no matter what. And if if you if you have the right people working on the production anyway, like if you have a Tim Burton in the director's seat, and he wants that actor, maybe just let him have it. <laughs> like, and you know, I think I think Nick Cage at that point would have been the right choice because. Obviously, Tim Burton was on board with it. Uh, John Peters tries to take credit for it. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's true, but he does say that Cage was my idea. I was going to say, I could see that being a John Peters. Like, uh, like that's one that they both had an idea for. Like, he's like, yeah, I want Nick Cage, but he wanted Nick Cage for all the wrong, re- all the wrong reasons. Like, he wanted, like, crazy Nick Cage to play him. And Tim Burton was like, no, that's actually a good choice because he's seen his, his dramatic roles. And he's like, oh, yeah, I, uh, I think that'd be a good... But, yeah, he might have taken credit for it, but it wasn't for the right reasons. Yeah, I, I don't know how much truth there is to that. I wouldn't be surprised because, like, like yeah. you said, I could see him just... Being thinking that Cage is, you know, he's he's a wild man. I like that, um, but uh, the, <laughs> he does say um, John Schnapps is like giving John Peters some some praise while they're doing while they're conducting this interview. He says that yeah, like when Batman '89 came out, like I was very receptive to it because at that point in time I was reading the comics and that was where we were at with Batman. We we're fully into like the grim and gritty Batman, um, which was not always the case, but. Um, at that point, John Peters, I don't know if he was just trying to be chummy with him or if he was... He may have been speaking directly out of his ass, but he says, yeah, the, originally the line when Batman grabs the thug in the beginning of Batman 89, he says, I'm Batman. <laughs> He's, he says, yeah, it's supposed to be, I'm Batman, motherfucker. <laughs> that would have been awful. And Yeah, that would have been awful, but, I mean, there is some novelty to that. I'm Batman. Motherfucker. Motherfucker. <laughs> it would have ruined it. Thank yeah, God they I, shut I loved, that down. I loved... Well, it was PG-13. I don't think you could get a motherfucker in there. Um, I I loved the, the clip of Nick Cage. I don't know what... I think it was... Like, Bad Lieutenant. Oh, just the, the interview footage of him on the set of some... It's like something you would play on like the TV Guide channel or something. Yeah. I think he was doing it for Bad Lieutenant because um, uh, Ava Mendez was sitting opposite of him. I think he was he was doing some stuff for a Bad Lieutenant. You're that or Ghost Rider? <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. I'm gonna go Bad Lieutenant. But, 
<laughs> yeah, let, let's think about happy things here. But he's like, yeah, I was going to turn that character upside down along with Tim Burton. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, I wrote that down too. Like he said it with such confidence. It's like, yeah, I think he, I think he could have. But yeah, the interview is basically just someone asking him, like, yeah, we heard rumor that you were supposed to be Superman at some point. He's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, should have happened. It didn't. <laughs> um, and yeah, it seems like everybody in the production uh, was pretty fucking on board with the idea of Nick Cage. Um, Lois Lane, on the other hand, was a big fucking mystery. Nobody um, knows. Nobody, nobody knows. Nobody, yeah, nobody had a clue as to who she was supposed to be. Because I guess Courtney Cox got, like, floated at some point. Julianne Pass. Moore. Pass. Yeah, Julianne Moore probably had, Julianne Moore had everything going on back then. She still is a very busy actress. Um, Sandra Bullock, um, no. I'm sorry. Just no. Uh, no. She she could do it, but you know, I, you know. Her voice, do, her voice is not she, Lois Laney. Sandra, Sandra Bullock has an audience. She has a very vocal, very proud audience, but it's not ah. me. <laughs> she's <laughs> and she does sneeze. have that voice, yeah. She's got to sneeze away from sounding like Fran Drescher. Like it's just it's right there. It's just just a little more nasally. She'd be Fran Drescher. <laughs> um, yeah. However, uh, Jimmy Olsen was all but confirmed to be chris rock um and this is where the uh the dogma story comes in and we yeah. cut back to kevin smith briefly and he says chris rock just like bopped onto the set one day and said guess who's playing jimmy olsen <laughs> and kevin smith <laughs> was like you motherfucker <laughs> like yeah. i worked on that film <laughs> i would be furious i thought that was fun yeah, if some guy showed up to the set and told me he's working on the movie I just got kicked off of. <laughs> My dream project. It's uh, like, hey, Chris, you ever read a Superman comic? Nope. <laughs> it, uh, Tim Burton in the interview is more, he's jokier and smilier than I would have expected Tim Burton to be. I don't know. I, I've always felt like he'd be more morose. But uh, there, there's something funny when he's doing the um, costume development with... Uh, with Nick Cage in the hotel room and they're talking about the cape or whatever and Tim Burton does not get a full thought out. He's like, well, you know, you could, you know, there's, I mean, there is the, uh, we could, you know, and uh, like he just, he, he just sits there and says, he didn't say anything. Like you could tell he's working, he's like trying to work out what to do with the suit, but he just cannot articulate what he's trying to say. Yeah, he's, he, I don't, I've seen many interviews with him, and he—he's definitely a goofy guy. Um, he has that—he has that like, I don't know, goth look about him where you think he's like kind of like downbeat and like dour, I guess. But yeah, almost every interview I've seen him, and he's just kind of goofy. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't—I don't know what his inner workings are like, obviously, but like he—he he see, man, I think I could be Tim Burton's friend. <laughs> let's uh let's talk about some of the the concept art and some of the casting because i think they kind of go hand in hand especially with one of them yeah um, yeah uh, um you brainiac you want brainiac talk about brainiac brainiac so okay. i'll i'll disclaimer i know nothing about uh superman i've never liked superman actually i as far as uh comic book heroes go i think superman's my least favorite uh he's a buff you dude don't who like has everything superman going. and you you don't like Captain America? You are un-American, sir. I get the I get the the fantasy of like liking Superman. He's a buff dude with like 
he's he's a he's a buff god alien who who's just gonna smash ass. Like I totally get it why people are like, Yeah, <laughs> this is a good fantasy for me. But I'm like it's just he's boring. I like I like the like the kind of like mopey Batman who's just like, Yeah, I've got a billion dollars and a old man white slave, but I just you know, I, I wanna go fight crime at night and like I just I like that better as a story. So I don't know anything about Superman. I don't know any of I know Zod. That's the only person I know. And that's just because it was Michael Shannon. That's the only reason I watched those clips from that movie. It was because of Michael Shannon. But mm. Brainiac, uh, the concept art for Brainiac is bonkers. Like it's cool. I'm like I want this movie just because of the the concept art that they had. Uh, who was they? Who were they going to cast as Brainiac? Uh, Jim Carrey was originally <laughs> like. Yeah, uh, I mean, you need to remember, like in context, like at that point in time, Jim Carrey was on top of the world, and he would have bankrupted. Which, yeah, no, he he, he would have cost too much. Um, but yeah, he they did court Jim Carrey at one point to be Brainiac. However, uh, and I think this was right on the money. Perfect. Uh, I don't think you could have done it better. Uh, like Christopher Walken uh, yep. was who I think Tim Burton wanted. Uh, obviously, he got him later for Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, I mean, even the, the thing with Tim Burton's filmography—not so much nowadays, but like in his prime, like in his black and white era, from like the late '80s to like through the mid '90s. Uh, just looking at the construction of an actor's face, he he likes big eyes. He made a movie called Fucking Big Eyes mm-hmm. about a painter that nobody fucking saw, but he has a thing with eyes where. It, he likes actors with large eyes. I mean, Michael. Did you? Dane, did you? Christopher Walken. Did you notice? Do you know who his first wife was? I'm sorry to to sidetrack. Uh, Lisa Marie, did, from uh, Mars Attacks. Uh, and uh, she's been in many of his movies, actually. Yeah. Uh, she was in Mars Attacks. She was in Ed Wood. She was in Sleepy, Sleepy Hollow. Hollow. She she's is fine. fine. <laughs> she yeah. is fine. Because like, Lisa mean, Marie is. Hot. <laughs> Hot. Like, that's so weird. I mean, that... there's a reason I know her name, even though she's not a big-name actress. It's not... Like, I might I watch Mars... in the holster. <laughs> I think I might watch Mars Attacks after this, honestly. Uh, it's not a good movie, but it's just... It's a nostalgia... It's a nostalgia movie for me, because I liked it when I was young, but... Um, I mean, it's not so only cr- is she, like, super hot, I think she's, I think she's like, his kind of weird. <laughs> I can see that. Oh, I mean, she like, married she, him. He, he... Well, she, like... He, in in his movies, he had a tendency to like put her in like, like like B movie like pinup style garments and stuff, and she had the figure for it. Yeah, for she got sake. it. And and yeah, I think there was a mutual understanding of some sort between the two of them. Well, I want to know it's if like, she yeah, married him. We're, we're into this. I want to know if she married him before or after Batman '89, when he made a shit ton of money. Probably, probably after, if I had to guess. It was um, after. It was after. Yeah. Damn it. See, I wanted it to be before, um, but it's just weird because like I only knew him being married to Helena Bottom Carter. So when you find out, like, oh, he was married before. Well, what does she look like? Damn. <laughs> he did that, that Craig and Day Day. Like, oh. My. Uh, <coughs> oh no. Sorry, uh, yeah, Craig and Smoke. Yeah, but um, speaking. Speaking of uh, Mars Attacks, uh, that was a design motif that I feel was carried over from Mars Attacks. Um, Brainiac, yeah, the cloak, and the the head in the bubble. Like, yeah, that's very clearly some 
borrowed material from Mars Attacks, which is not a bad thing. Well, they even pointed um, out actually they... that's something I that's something I really love about movies. Actually, um, it it affords you an, a unique opportunity as a filmmaker. Um, I actually kind of enjoy watching watching people chip away at the same concept over and over and over again. I like watching iterations of the same idea. Some people find it intensely frustrating. Some people think it's lazy and dull. Give an example. I really like that. Well, um, uh, in preparation for Anime August uh, mm. <laughs> advertisement, um, Ninja Scroll, uh, the director yes. of that, Yoshiaki Kawajiri, um, you'll notice he has a lot of motifs in his movies that... Uh, a lot of similar character designs, a lot of similar set pieces, a lot of similar concepts that just pop up over and over and over again. And you can tell that it's it's something that he he's like testing himself. He's trying to do the same idea over and over and over again until he gets it the way he wants it. And if you look at like movies he made before Ninja Scroll with less money and less, you know, time and time and ability put into the animation, you can like see him trying to get this one shot or this one concept down and it's like he didn't quite get it that time but next time will be better and then like neil blomkamp like transhumanism has a way of appearing in every movie he's ever made every movie he's made like like uh what was it district nine man turns into alien uh chappy man turns into robot or robot turns into man or whatever uh elysium man turns into cyborg man like this is a theme there's a reason he's being tapped to do robocop because that's what he does he does movies about people becoming things that aren't people anymore uh, and i like seeing those themes carry over in directors projects and tim burton has a thing both aesthetically like a lot, there's a lot of visual motifs that pop up in his movies especially color palette like that's why i call it his black and white era i liked him better when he had less color in his productions Correct. Now he has all the colors, and if, I, I'm, it just hurts my eyes to look at. Like, Alice in Wonderland is just a puke fest. Um, but, like, thematically, if you look at his movies, there's a, a theme across all of his good movies <laughs> where it's about an outsider of some sort. It's about a gifted stranger of some sort that has some sort of amazing ability or gift that they have to keep secret, otherwise it'll hurt people. Edward Scissorhands is probably the best example of that. Winona Ryder with scissors Win for hands. Winona Ryder has big eyes. Sorry, I thought of somebody else who has big eyes. Yes, yeah. well, Winona has the biggest eyes, which is why yeah. he used her a lot. Like she was perfect at that point in time too. Her look was everywhere. So Christina like she, Ricci. She that. Yeah, Christina Ricci. <laughs> There's a reason why she he got he got her eventually. <laughs> he wanted her early on, but he didn't get her till later. Does you and McGregor have big eyes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, his his casting and his 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 themes are very consistent in his in his good films. And the point I've been trying to make for the past five minutes of ranting is just that yeah, uh, I liked seeing the the concept art from Mars Attacks find its way into Superman because it's like oh we're doing that again, like maybe it'll look better this time or maybe it'll have a different feel to it. I, I'm just happy to see it because I think that's kind of cool. But yeah, uh, the the Brainiac designs in this are fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. If you don't even, if you don't bother watching the documentary, at the very least, you might want to look up the concept art that's featured in it. Uh, it's it's shown to us in like Ken Burns fashion, and it's some of the 
it's gorgeous. Like there's so much good work that went into this that Did unfortunately they, didn't get used. I wish they would make like a coffee table book of this of this documentary with just the concept art, so you could just peruse, like just check it out. Like you're sitting at a coffee, there sitting at a, the couch, just kind of look over the artwork for the film. This would be one of the best ones. I mean, that's I I would own that. I mean, I, I would own, I own a lot of books that are exactly that just not for this production and uh it's it's something i'd probably throw 30 bucks at or whatever but oh, um so christopher walken as brainiac would be spectacular um i, I don't want to go into too much detail about the character but basically brainiac is one of one of superman's biggest most prolific villains um at some point i think i think it was actually the cartoon uh, that was on TV when you and I were young, uh, the '90s Superman cartoon produced by Warner Brothers. It was it came out after the Batman the animated series. Then I wasn't and watching it. Was also it. very very it was very very good. Um, it was the animation didn't have as much love put into it, nor did the character designs, um, but the voice acting and the writing were both pretty fucking great. Um, Michael Ironside as Darkseid was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, but I think it was that cartoon, actually, which had the idea of uh, shaking things up and having Brainiac's origin tied into Superman's, where in that cartoon they had Brainiac be, res- like, be partially responsible for the explosion of Krypton, uh, so their origins were tied directly to one another, and I think they, they found a way to work that into the comics retroactively at some point. Um, maybe not in time for this movie being in production but the point is brainiac is like a collector of knowledge and and creatures so he that's where the menagerie comes into play and stuff um but lex luther who was supposed to play lex luther kyle uh, <clears throat> this was uh this was a really good idea that they had at the time and it was <laughs> later utilized uh kevin spacey and uh kevin smith was very passionate about kevin spacey being the person to play lex luther he's like he's perfect for it smarmy just shitty arrogant smarter than everybody in the room asshole like yeah that's perfect and he would later <laughs> pretty much just do that as as uh uh the House of Cards fella, whatever his name is, whatever that guy's name is. Um, yeah, perfect, perfect role for Kevin Spacey. Uh, we don't really talk about him anymore, uh, but he did later play. It was it in the yeah. the Brian, Brian Singer, his Superman. Did he play him in that one? Superman Returns. Yes, he did. Who played, and did they nailed, not? He nailed it. Like, Who plays uh, Lex Luthor in um, the... Man of Steel. Is there a Lex Luthor? Is he not coming until Eisenberg? But but he I, doesn't did, show up. He doesn't show up until Batman versus Superman. Okay, thank you. That's what I thought. I watched the clip of him. I watched the clip of him with uh, uh, introducing um, Clark Kent to uh, what's his face, uh, Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne. And yeah. just from that clip alone, I knew that I didn't want to see a minute of that movie. Because that is the worst performance I think I've ever seen, is him talking. Those oh 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 god, I, I hate it. It makes me cringe thinking it's about a, it. It's a strange performance. It's a very strange performance because I know what he's trying to do, but there's there's too many quirks in it, and there are certain things he does very very well. Because the one of the coolest ideas I heard a while back. Um, 
this came from a gentleman by the name of Movie Bab, who uh, does movie reviews, um, not so frequently anymore. But um, one of the coolest ideas I heard from him uh, was the idea of The Rock playing Lex Luthor. Um, and that seems that seems bizarre, I know, but there's a point to it, and I think it's actually a good point. And the point is that Lex Luthor intrinsically is a character who's supposed to be like peak human like he's supposed to be like in terms of success as a human being you can't get much better than lex luther he's jeff bezos (laughs) like right down to the bald head like he has all the money in the world he he can make anything happen with a snap of his fingers because of it and yet there's this person who can fly and move mountains just by virtue of being like crash landing on the planet so he did nothing to earn those powers he just appeared one day and is automatically the best at like not only is he super intelligent he can move mountains and fly and lex luther cannot do any of those things despite being a trillionaire or whatever and then i thought like if you apply that mentality uh to a person who's built like the rock like imagine what that would feel like to be not only a trillionaire but also be like like the world's strongest man like be like the mountain like be hop for hop thor bjornson but also a trillionaire and then have superman show up one day and put like all of your super hard work all the hours you dumped into building your body and your your wealth just put it all to shame overnight that would that would plant the seeds for some intense hatred <laughs> i don't think that the rock can pull off that character i get where you're coming from but i don't I don't think he would be able to to pull that off. Uh, I'm gonna well, counter. He's too damn likable. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. He's too affable. I'm gonna counter with Chris Pine. I think Chris Pine could do that because he's not the size of uh, the Rock, but he's also he's a built dude. Like he's big, and he's really handsome, and he has that. He has those evil eyes. Like he could really pull off. Like oh, you just want to choke him. Like you're like oh my god, I fucking hate him. Um, yeah, I can see him one day. I think he needs to age a little you, bit. You might be onto some. You might be onto something there, because you know he. I mean? I mean, his Captain Kirk has a, has like an arrogant edge to him, but he's mm-hmm. always portrayed in such a way that you're meant to still like him. But we've seen enough of that that I think if he wanted to play unlikable, he probably could. Horrible it's bosses his, too. His. Oh, he's in that. Oh yeah, that you should watch that. I I really love that first one. Uh, the I've second seen, one's I've funny. seen the first one. Jason oh, Sudeikis and Charlie Day, Jason Bateman. You, yeah, you get me for anything funny with them in it. Um, but yeah, Spe- speaking uh, of Jason Sudeikis, um, there's a movie by the name of Colossal. Have you ever heard of it? No. Um, is he is it a serious is it a serious role with him? Because I don't. Yes. Really. Yes, and he deserves all the kudos in the world. Um, really. He was, really he was he was amazing in it like as soon as like in watching it i was like why is this guy not like doing bigger better things like he's incredible because <laughs> he's from saturday night live <laughs> in closing about lex luther um just want to say that uh i i do think kevin spacey fucking nailed that performance um say what you will about him as a person i know he's a shitbag but uh yeah, uh, everybody was right. He should he should have played that role because he he nailed it. Um, 
And then there's a new character that gets introduced uh, in Superman Lives, and as far as I know, um, this is the only place where this character has ever ever been like attempted or referenced. Uh, it's a character by the name of K. Um, I don't know. I'm guessing it was supposed to have a voice. Uh, they never cast anybody for it, but um, I thought I thought this was a really cool idea. Kal El. It's a essentially no, no Kal El is Superman. Um, K is uh, his robotic teddy bear. I thought it was such a cool idea. It it made me think of uh, AI, uh, the mm-hmm. the Spielberg slash Kubrick movie, um, where Haley Joel Osment has his little teddy bear friend. Uh, that sir, he's it's Jiminy Cricket. Like let's let's not mince words here. It's Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> it's yeah. his conscience. Um, but K is supposed to be like a robotic teddy bear that I guess is like a fixture at the Fortress of Solitude. And the idea was um, K would have been in the pod with Kal-El when he flies from Krypton to Earth, and then would serve as like his his security blanket, I guess. And he's, like, with him all throughout his childhood and into adulthood, although at some point he just, like, goes and hangs out in the Fortress of Solitude. And the the idea here was that Superman would be killed by Doomsday some at some point in the film, and then K would be instrumental in his regeneration. Uh, so he'd, like, recover his body and, like, put him into some sort of regeneration tank or, and uh, at some point, like, serve as, like, an exoskeleton for him while he's still re- recovering. And I really love. I really like that concept. It's it's very fairy fairy tale ish, I guess, where it's like you have this like protector thing that eventually sacrifices itself in some way, like willfully, um, to to bring you back. So it's it like in, literally envelops him uh, and becomes part of him to to protect him and like bring him back to full strength. And uh, I like the music that plays when they're talking about Kay. It's it's very whimsical. Um, Who would have voiced him? Ah, that's a tough one, because uh, the concept art for K, um, the fellow who did a lot of the drawings, um, he actually he did a lot of Brainiac and K drawings. Um, he said Brainiac, the the motif was a cobra. Um, the his cloak was intended to like be like a cobra hood kind of. Um, yeah, and, and then, then K, K was going to be an owl. His inspiration was exactly. Uh, so, an owl. Anthony Hopkins. I mean, I picture having like. Mm, I don't think so. Nah, I mean, you're you're, you're not wrong. Like, if you look at Anthony <laughs> Hopkins, you do you. No, I mean, if you look at Anthony Hopkins's face, yes, I you do think of an owl. He has that. He has that shape of his head. You know, um, but he has kind of a snappy way of speaking. Have you not heard? Have uh, you not seen the? He, the, he whips his words. No, the the Grinch. Have you not seen um, the the Jim Carrey Grinch movie? Yeah, I've seen it. You've seen it? he narrates through the whole thing, and that's what I was that's what I was imagining was him talking like oh. this, very very calm, like an AI. Well, but he he sounds he sounds like Marlon Brando in that movie. <laughs> Does he? And we all we already have a Jor El in this movie. Well, similar kind of pattern, I guess. Like. Marlon Brando's Jorel kind of had the like detached way of speaking, I guess. I I don't know. I, I'm I'm having trouble picturing Anthony Hopkins just because he. To me, he's he's at his best when he's speaking kind of hurriedly, I guess. Where he like think think about his performance in The Edge, where he says really profound things 
very quickly and very matter-of-factly. And I picture this teddy bear thing kind of maybe having that detached quality to it because it is supposed to be an artificial life form of some sort, but at the same time, maybe more warmth. See, I can't, I like, can't think of someone else. But I'm thinking like Hal. Like Martin Hal Sheen. <laughs> Martin Sheen. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be like hello have you have I ever told you have I ever told you about Gettysburg <laughs> it's the most important formative battle in American history <laughs> my damn my damn son Charlie he, he keeps coming up to the fortress of solitude he's Saigon <laughs> which <laughs> which rails off and starts rambling about Vietnam <laughs> which movie does Charlie Sheen and Martin Sheen they pass each other on the boats uh is it it's one of those goofy movies that uh, Charlie oh, hot, Sheen... Hot Shots. There we go. Two. Yeah, where they pass each other. Yeah. Yeah, Hot Shots Part 2, and the line is beautiful. It's, uh, I loved you in Wall Street. I was like, that's that's clever. That's good. I miss those movies. Um... But yeah, I think at this point in the documentary, we get to the Holy Grail. They refer it, they refer to it as, um, and that would be the actual uh, test footage, the actual like pre-production costume test of Nick Cage in a hotel room, and uh, Colleen Atwood, the costume designer, and Tim Burton all just uh, taking a good look at what this Superman suit's going to look like, and it's kind of a magical moment. Okay, uh, so yeah, we're getting, uh, we're doing costume check, or we're doing, a uh, uh, testing the, um, the suit on Nick Cage in the hotel room, and you said Tim Burton, and who was the, the costume designer? Uh, a gal by the name of Colleen Atwood, uh, as far as I know, she's, like, one of the foremost costume designers in Hollywood, she's a big name, and with a name like that, like, I mean, that's kind of like a perfect costume designer's name, if you ask right. me, it's very, uh, it's very posh, very chic. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is like a magical moment where we we finally get to see this this long rumored footage uh, that wasn't even certain if it existed or not. But it's it's the actual archival test footage of uh, Nicolas Cage parading around in a uh, like an early test version, like a prototype of of the Superman suit, and man, it's it's a lot of fun because you get to see him like this is when he's only had a script to go by like he's probably been talking with tim burton and the producers but probably not too much you get to see him like put on the suit and kind of like start to work out the character a little bit Mm -hmm. and he's like he's very he's very uh verbal like he's he's kind of verbalizing the thoughts about things he could do with this things that he could do in the creation of this character based on the way he looks now and it's really interesting seeing this process come together. And like you said, Tim Burton's like trying to get words in, but he's just like giddy as a schoolboy, or like I don't know what his deal is. He's just like, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's it's fragile at this point. The the whole production, uh, like I think he I think he was probably a little nervous because he's like they've really spent time on this suit, and he's like now we're actually going to be showing Nick Cage the suit, and this is a point where Nick Cage would be like, you know what, I don't want to do this, and I think that Tim Burton is very <laughs> enthusiastic. And 
it's probably he's probably a little awestruck like wow he's like he's really enthusiastic about this like he's really like thinking about his character uh thinking about the costume thinking about things that they could do like um he mentions the cape at one point uh he's just like i feel like it's kind of like a child's blanket you know like <laughs> just kind of yeah uh, there's a there's a lot of repetition of that actually where like the one of the, the other things he says about the costume is like i love the sparkle thing like yeah like the imagination of a child and it's like i you can tell that that was probably at the very core of of what he had in mind for this character that he he wanted to bring i don't know like a, a sense of like childlike wonderment and naivete to the character or something like i think i think he wanted it to have that kind of feel where it's like he's a little bit aloof but almost childlike i was gonna say uh, well maybe, maybe one of the reasons why they picked nick cage was because he's a, a huge comic book fan i mean he's a coppola but he doesn't go by nicholas coppola he goes by nick cage yeah yeah um that was i don't know how public that was at that point um it probably wasn't I mean, at tim all. burton exactly he probably kept that under his hat but like inside i'm sure he was giddy as a schoolboy because he's getting to be fucking superman and like you said he's a big comic book fan um tim burton maybe not so much i know he did read comics um but not to the extent that nick cage was like invested in traditional like superhero comics um but yeah there's a lot of talk about the costume and like what works about it what needs some what needs some work um there there's a gag here where they're talking about like at some point everybody was kind of keying in on the the, the underwear portion of the costume yeah like a point of contention yeah um, that was a that was a smart move yeah um i mean certain co- certain iterations of the costume like i think henry cavill's version of the of the superman suit just doesn't have the underwear uh, if i remember right the new 52 in the comics um the the dc universe reboot comics uh, they they removed it as well and then gave him like a, a Nehru collar as well um but for cage like they were joking at one well half joking (laughs) at one point that they they wanted to put like the equivalent of like basketball shorts on (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i don't know where that came from i don't know where that came from but i'm very glad that we never ever got a version of superman that did that because dumbest thing i've ever heard and it's funny we cut back to john peters for a moment here um where he's talking about the cape and this is where that line, the, it's like it's like a child's blanket, where, where Cage throws that out there. Um, but John Peters is talking up the cape, and he, he, I guess he had, like, <laughs> he had the desire to have it be, like, a weaponized cape of some sort. And I was thinking while he was saying that, I was like, why didn't you make Spawn, John Peters? Like, it, surely you could have made Spawn instead. <laughs> I was picturing the rug from Aladdin, uh, the magic carpet. That's what I'm thinking. Like he's just going off to go do things. Like yeah, he's like the cape would like, uh, like go off his person and go like go grab something for him or something like that. I'm like I don't hate that idea, but I don't think the cape needs to do that. It's not, it's not the worst idea you've had, John Peters. I'm sure, um, but yeah, I don't. We it doesn't need to be animated, and I think it would have looked stupid too. Because I mean, how were they going to do that? Were they going to use like puppet strings and like? <laughs> have it move or it was gonna yeah, be bad I mean, cgi it, it it would have been bad cgi and it's superman he doesn't need that like he he has enough tools he doesn't need a he doesn't need a sentient cape on top of it 
Um, and besides, Disney, no. like you said, has that market cornered. They not only do they have the magic carpet from Aladdin, they also have Doctor Strange's cape now. So, yeah, <laughs> Disney would be like, uh uh uh. Um, <laughs> uh, I was gonna ask you what you thought of the uh, the Krypton uh, illustrations because uh, I thought the um, the tectonic plate Krypton, where it like shifts like Dark City. That's what I kind of pictured. Where it's like it's constantly moving uh, and shifting. I'm like, that's a really kind. Of, that's a neat idea for uh, for Krypton, and it would have been probably pretty cool to like. I, I'm picturing kind of the. I, I don't think they're matte paintings in Batman. They might be, but some of the Gotham, uh, the Gotham landscapes we get in those first two Batman movie. I was picturing that, but with the Krypton uh, illustrations. I have a feeling like the 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 whiz bang factor of CGI was in full swing in the you know in the mid to late nineties. Like if producers were probably eager to slip slip those kinds of effects into their movies because you know Jurassic Park was a big fucking deal. People like new, um, but at the end of the day, the heavy lifting would probably be done by matte paintings and miniatures. And uh, I think some of the miniature work because uh, tim burton loves miniatures oh yeah that's part that's part of why i love his early movies because he found a way to work them in all the time like one of my favorite shots in batman returns is the introduction of the penguin's lair mm-hmm. um, it's this amazing sweeping shot of a miniature set that's like it's an abandoned zoo basically in the winter time and it's incredible um and like the opening shot of ed wood and there's so many miniatures that are used in his films they're just spectacular and i have zero doubt in my mind that that's how they would have rendered krypton and it would have looked incredible and yeah the tectonic plate thing was cool um there's like a a sphere motif in some of the art um one of the one of the more prominent drawings has like a like a orange and blue palette that's really audacious and off the wall that has it has that like 1950s like pulp magazine feel to it which was again very cool and seemed right up tim burton's alley all of this stuff could have worked um, i don't know what would have served as the principal like the core design that they went with for the actual production but there's a lot of good stuff in here <laughs> um where do we go from here uh john peters uh his inst- like him coming onto the set was kind of annoying from what I could gather. Mm. Um, so yeah, this is where we kind of get this. This was the Krypton illustrations, and uh, I don't maybe the 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 skull ship. I'm not sure that that comes up eventually. I think it's a little later. Yeah, the skull uh, the skull ship is worth talking about because it, I think the uh, the actual production company is named after it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the production company that put out this movie the death of superman lives um, so the skull ship was supposed to be uh brainiac's like vessel and john peters talks about it as if it's supposed to be formed like from fragments of krypton after it exploded which is a cool idea it's but, a cool like, idea the, the skull ship was intended to be brainiac's vessel uh, and th- one of the big themes about brainiac as a character in the comics is that he's like a collector of of things and knowledge and uh he collects entire civilizations essentially Uh, like like their entire histories everything about them and so he often in the comics is shown as like traveling through space with essentially museums of entire planets but like shrunken down in some form Uh, the aesthetics of this 
very wildly, but the skull ship is definitely like a like a nod to that. And inside the skull ship, uh, it was intended to be something called the menagerie, uh, which was basically an entire zoo of of creatures and monsters from all over the universe and all over the galaxy. And uh, you can tell John Peters was really enthused about this idea because uh, it would be an excuse to have all sorts of monsters that could potentially fight Superman. Um, and yeah, and we get to see... Oh, go ahead. He, he told the artist, too, which I'm, I'm assuming um, pretty much any artist working on a movie wants to hear, is, go nuts, just draw monsters. And they just went... The, the the artists were just like fuck yes like we're just gonna draw monsters <laughs> like that's that's the best case scenario when you come into work yeah um this is where Cary Gamble comes into play apparently he was one of an actual Superman comic book artist uh, he was one of the people recruited strictly to design monsters also another graphic artist by the name of Brom um and <laughs> yeah they came up with some amazing stuff and it actually reminded me of an article I read a long time ago about the the making of Final Fantasy thirteen. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it on the air before, but uh, basically Final Fantasy thirteen is it's not a good game from what I understand. It's it's woefully like it's a woefully inept story in the sense that none of it makes a whole lot of sense unless you read all the supplemental material, even though it's presented to you in a linear fashion. But the, the whole thing I'm driving at here is that it was directed by a guy from the art department who got promoted to director. And apparently what he did in pre-production, like before they started actually coding the game and stuff, was he, he asked all of his buddies in the art department to just crank out drawings, just make stuff. And for years on end, they drained company resources just drawing stuff without direction, without knowing what said stuff would be applied to. And it's like a gross misuse of resources. <laughs> it's just like parts of me actually looked at some of the concept art for this, the Superman Lives production and had a bit of worry in me where it's like, oh, God, like, like, was there a vision behind this? <laughs> like, because like a lot of these drawings don't jive with each other. Like a lot of these drawings don't seem like they, they're applying to a singular vision of some sort. Um, but yeah, uh, the monsters, though. Uh, that was actually a good thing because we're we're aiming for variety here, um, and we got a whole host of stuff. Some of Brahms stuff in particular was really interesting. Where he was really uh, driving at the idea of like it was supposed to be like a mad scientist lair. So like a lot of the monsters would be either tortured or like turned into cyborgs in some fashion. Like had some sort of forced like surgery forced upon them. And some of the renderings of that were pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, um, I liked the the artists were talking about John Peters coming into the uh, into the office, and he would have just a like a whole group of people with him, I guess, and uh, like there was kids and stuff. And I'm like, what a fucking dick. But I actually was like, okay, John Peters, that's not a bad that's not a bad reason. He's like, I, he's like, I'm used to being the the head guy in the office, and. Uh, he said people are just kind of like yes men sometimes. He's like, but kids will tell you the truth. Kid, kids are just honest. And I'm like, I guess he was kind of getting a, um, opinions from the kids on the monsters. I'm like, that's not a bad idea, yeah, I suppose. He he seems like he was probably kind of a bully to the to the artists especially. But certain things he says, it's like there is a logic driving this. Yeah. 
he is justified in some of his questionable decision making. Yeah. yeah, I I agree with you on that. It's yeah, um, even if he didn't listen to the kid, like just to have that opinion just on the spot, that might actually be useful. Well, who's this going to be marketed to? It's going to be marketed exactly. to nerds and kids. Exactly. Know um, your audience. Yeah, know your audience. Uh, yeah, I guess he was putting people in head in the headlock. Uh, he says, I've been in over 500 fights. I'm like, I, I'm going to be honest with you, Trevor. I don't think anybody has been in over 500 fights. Like, that's a lot of fights. That's I, a lot of fights. Uh, even um, f- and, you know, two, one or two fights usually shows on your face, you know. Um, yeah. 500, you'd have what I like to refer to as hamburger face. And CTE. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, you want to know what hamburger face looks like? Just look up Wanderlei uh, Silva. Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know Von um, Silva. But uh yeah, this uh this great quote from John Peters is uh he's he's trying to explain himself when John Schnepp asks him about like, yeah, I the, a lot of the artists said you would you would come into their offices and like put them in jujitsu holds in front of ladies and stuff <laughs> to, to to motivate them. And uh he said, Well I I wanted what it's like to break your nose. I, I, I've been in 500 fights. Uh, what it's like to break your hand. What it is to taste someone else's blood. I wanted that in these movies. It's like, okay, John. Okay. <laughs> okay, John. There's no other way to do that than to put them into headlocks, but okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and at this point, Warner Brothers is getting cold feet. So this is where we enter the the, the sad part of the documentary. Yeah. Where things start to, to wind down a bit. Before before we uh, switch it over there, I was gonna say I liked. Uh, I think we might have mentioned before we started recording Nick Cage's uh, uh, Clark Kent outfit. Uh, he's basically just looks like Tim Burton. Um, I yes, he does. <laughs> yeah, he basically just looks like Tim Burton. But uh, it, I didn't catch that the first time I watched it, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. I, 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 it made me a little even more sad. I'm like, I would be interested to see what his Clark Kent would be like. I'm assuming he'd have like. It looked like he was gonna have like a nervous energy. That's that's what I assumed his Clark Kent would be. Well, I th- again, I think it comes back to that Tommy Wiseau idea, where I think the idea would be he would be trying too hard, because like Clark Kent, like there are many different interpretations of him, but like in the comics, he like found himself at some point and he just became a normal guy. Christopher Reeve's interpretation of Clark Kent was to be like the over-the-top nerd that was like fidgety and anxious all the time and always seem to be at a loss for words and i think nick cage's would have a bit of that but more like more sad and more pathetic in the in the sense that he's like trying to draw less attention to himself by trying harder (laughs) (laughs) cavill superman it seems like he's just a hunk either way it doesn't matter it's like well i got glasses on but i still clean up you know like i'm still smashing all the time but i mean i'm also (laughs) superman too so there's that uh, it seems like there's like there's no difference between Clark there's Kent and Superman. No difference between the two. I mean, you haven't even watched Batman versus Superman, right? I watched that scene between uh, Jesse okay. Eisenberg. Yeah, I watched that. And I'm so like, he's just stoic. Like he's just kind of like not really sizing up Bruce Wayne, but he's just like not intimidated, not phased by him at all. Not a nerd. Side, side note, it bothers me, and and I. I know this is probably just me, but it bothers me seeing Batman be taller than Superman. Nah. It just does not look right. <laughs> I mean, Bruce Blood's uh, Bruce Wayne is blue blood, man. That's good. He's got good genetics. That's just going to happen. Well, again, it plays into that theme of 
Superman is better than everyone just by just by appearing one day. Yeah. And when you think about it, it's like okay, you have Bruce Wayne who's super jacked and had to like work his ass off to get to where he's at, and to have him be the larger, more imposing figure, but and yet be the weaker of the two is there's a there's some sort of theme there, but from an aesthetic standpoint, it it bothers me. Well, I'm it going just doesn't look right. I'm going Cavill over Ben Affleck any day. Even dad, if you dad bod him, I would still go Cavill <laughs> over Ben Affleck. I don't know. He's kind of plain. He's he's a little vanilla. Like Affleck's at least got like that like dopey swagger, where it's like he's not actually slick, but he he's like thinks he is, and you kind of like you you feel for him in that sense. Like I to this day, I I do say that the best line in Batman versus Superman, and the fact that I know any lines from that movie tells you how many times I've watched it, <laughs> um, is Ben Affleck pretending to be drunk and telling Tal Okamoto who is super hot, by the way, mm-hmm. as she's walking away from him. He just points at her and he says, I like those shoes. <laughs> That's the best line in that movie. I still haven't watched it, but... Geez. It's it's a good Affleck moment where it's like, yeah, I, that worked. That really worked. But, um, um, Doomsday. Yeah. I think it was Doomsday I wanted to mention before we start to get into the cold feet. Um, ah. Tim Burton had an idea for Doomsday, which I thought was really neat. He was going to have Doomsday have a whole bunch of uh, faces, covered in uh, faces, and as he's fighting Superman the faces start to come out and like I maybe do like a Lois Lane face or uh, I don't know all the characters names um, but kind of messing with him emotionally I'm like that's pretty good idea how do you think they would have gone about that uh CGI Um, it wouldn't have been very good you remember the haunting yes (laughs) you're right it would be that it would be the little children from the haunting yeah Um, it would be very similar effect. Um, probably, well, probably done a little bit better, but not, but not by much. Do you think now? Just, just walk with me here for a second. So, the Matrix was in pre-production at this time, and uh, that rev- like that was a huge deal. Um, <laughs> the, the Matrix, um, and you said that one of the one of the artists uh, decided not to continue with that. Uh, project and came over to uh to this mm-hmm. do you think that if this was starting to get a lot of talk and there's a lot of money behind it do you think that they would have stolen some of the um the artists from the matrix and brought them over and we might actually get a good cgi uh doomsday with all the faces and the matrix would have been a flop or do you think that the matrix would have just jettisoned well, anyway see that's actually i'm glad you brought that up because I was turning that over in my head uh, at the very beginning when we first started recording, uh, because of the because of the timing, because uh, at the very end of this documentary, spoiler alert, uh, we find out that a lot of the resources dumped into Superman Lives uh, are diverted to Wild Wild West. Oh my God! Uh, yeah. Yeah, which did nobody any favors. Oh, I've got all uh, the numbers, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, it needs to be said. Um, I remember, I, I don't remember dates, but I do remember The Matrix was actually advertised long before 1999. Uh, it was delayed. For what reason, I don't remember. But I remember distinctly seeing it advertised early and then shelved for a few minutes longer. Like, it, D- like it, they put it back in the oven to finish it, basically. Does 1997 sound about right to you? Maybe. I want to say, like, 98, somewhere in 98, but... 
point the point I'm trying to make here is that the Matrix was also a Warner Brothers production. Mm-hmm. So I could totally see Superman lives like holding up the Matrix in some regard because you know the the studio wants to get its financing in order. Um, so it could be that if not for Superman lives, maybe the Matrix wouldn't have been as good as it ended up being uh, because of the extra time they had to work on it. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that John Peters wanted them to do was uh, the day that Princess Diana died, they were thinking about um, <laughs> uh, Superman's funeral. And I think John Peters like, turn on the news right now. Uh, Princess Diana, there, the, it was her funeral. And he's like, I want that. That is the funeral procession I want for Bat, for uh, Superman. And I'm like, Jesus, John Peters. Like, I mean, it's literally a, a person's funeral. Like, I mean, I guess you got to make money. And he's like, I don't, I don't have time to worry about the royal family. I've got to make money. I mean, that, I mean, that's uh, that's. I'm assuming that's what Hollywood's like. But um, I thought that was kind of shitty. But uh, so did, I, I caught one number. What, what was the budget that they were bouncing around? I saw 140 million at one point. I don't know if that was this movie. Um, it was a hun- It was a hundred, a hundred or a hundred plus. It was way up there. Well, Wild Wild West was a hundred and seventy million. Gemini Cribus, like a hundred and seventy <laughs> million back then. That is insane. Uh, it yeah. tanked, by the way, um, as far as investments go. Uh, they lost about oh fifty-seven million dollars on that movie. Um, yeah, budget was one hundred and seventy. It was it was one hundred and thirteen. It made one hundred and thirteen domestic box office. Um, in the in the deme- so we we said at the top here that John Peters and Tim Burton put out just those two Batman movies and made half a billion dollars bet- for 1989 and 1992. Um, one of the reasons why this ta- the reason why they scrapped this was because they were afraid that this wasn't going to be successful. Like they were gonna they thought they were gonna put too much money and time and energy into this. Tim Burton had already been working on this, I think, for what, two years now? Like just like uh I think so, yeah. He'd been working for about two years, um, with concept art. I don't even know if he'd started a storyboard at this point. Uh he probably had something, but we don't really get anything. Um no, we we actually do see plenty of storyboards in this documentary of just, several like not not of the finished film like mm-hmm. the script was never finished for this movie as far yeah. as i understand so of course we don't have like finished storyboards but there's a lot of key sequences that were mapped out mm-hmm. like the the thanagarian snare beast which is code for giant spider <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, we we get to see some uh we get to see some storyboards of that uh, there's a really funny moment in the documentary where one of the concept artists is talking about a scene wherein Superman, and this is studio mandate, by the way, Superman is fighting ninjas, and somebody was paid to storyboard that, and the this, the concept artist like trails off at some point, and he's like, you know, I have no idea why that's in there. <laughs> like, because, really, it, it like in no way could you justify a scene where Superman fights ninjas. It just... It, it just doesn't work. There's no reason for it other than, like, a studio saying, oh, Jackie Chan's popular. The Matrix is about to be popular. We should have kung fu or martial arts of some sort in the Superman movie. It's like, eh, okay, sure. 
I think one of Tim Burton's uh, friends, the I think the guy, his buddy from school, was like, yeah. yeah, he he resented Joel Schumacher for completely messing up his 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 vision of Batman, and deservedly oh, yeah. so. Yeah, uh, um, I was really shocked by this. Um, the second writer on the film, who is about to be fired, by the way, <laughs> as, as as a consequence as a consequence of the studio freaking out um, because they're numerous movies start to tank around this time and they're they're getting cold feet about proceeding with superman lives so they jump the gun they fire the second writer the guy who worked on batman returns who's a good friend of tim burton's and uh yeah uh he he is pretty uh he's pretty blunt here like Mm -hmm. he actually he actually uses the phrase fucked up like he he says schumacher fucked up tim burton's superman movie yeah and he he uses that he's phrases it in such a way that he's speaking for tim burton so apparently yeah. tim burton was like told him this that uh, that god damn it joel schumacher fucked up my superman movie and yeah it there it needs to be said that yeah batman and robin didn't do the studio all that many favors and that was 1997 and this S- superman lives was slated to begin production to th- in 1998 so it it's almost like a direct precursor to the to the scrapping of Superman Lives, but um, we get a third screenwriter brought on board at this point, Dan Gilroy, and uh, he, I don't know, his his vision for the story sounds like it was mostly him just sitting down with John Peters and doing what he was told. Oh uh, yeah, um, he has he has enthusiasm, but you can tell that he was mostly uh, he was there to bring structure to the thing, not so much to be an idea guy. Um, which is not a knock on him, but you can tell that he came. He was the third guy on the fucking job. Yeah. <laughs> He's not gonna like rewrite the whole fucking thing. He's gonna work with what they got and, and bring some sense to it. Write the ship. Um, and yeah, some one of one of my favorite actually, like one of my favorite uh, concept art in the whole thing is a uh, LexCorp. LexCorp. Uh, the interiors of that building are pretty fucking cool. Oh yeah, tell 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 the folks about Kevin Smith's story about uh, Pittsburgh. Oh yeah, so Pittsburgh was supposed to serve as our metropolis for this film, so they were planning on shooting in Pittsburgh. Which, uh, funny enough, I think The Dark Knight Rises ended up using it for Gotham. Um, but yeah, Kevin Kevin Smith, I can't remember what film he was working on. Dogma. Uh, Dogma. So he's still working on Dogma, <laughs> and Superman's still mocking him from afar. Basically, uh, there is a building. Uh, it's the PPG building in Pittsburgh. It, it has an amazing look to it. It looks like a castle or something, like a tall black spire. And uh, he wanted to film there, and then he got told off. He got told that, no, that, that location's like locked down. Uh, Superman Lives is going to be using it as LexCorp. And Kevin Smith's like, motherfucker. He's like, like no really? shit. Really? <laughs> God damn it! I get. Yeah. I, I think there's part of him that's secretly kind of like happy this never got off the ground. Like, I think he knows that it would have been really cool to see Tim Burton's Superman, but at the same time, because he was, you know, he was the one writing the script for it and got fired, he's probably like, yeah, fuck you guys. Yeah, you don't get to make the movie now. Well, I've been saying it for a long time. Kevin Smith is wonderful to listen to like he has such an enthusiasm for everything he talks about that's like it's it's infectious it's it's hard not to appreciate but never ever ever 
go to Kevin Smith if you want a movie review because he lo- he loves everything. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Smith is just an upbeat guy. He loves everything. Um and I feel like the fanboy in him would probably actually get in the way of a production like this. Like it's probably better for him to let other people produce the art and him just take it in and enjoy it because he's so good at enjoying it. Um he I think he's found his niche, his niche. Yeah, making making smaller films. Side note: I sent you a trailer for that new Jay and Silent Bob movie. I I know, I know. Holy balls! I I know, I know, I know. I I watched it. I watched it before you sent it to me, and Oof. yeah, I need I needed a moment. I was like, what am What are we doing, guys? <laughs> yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it looks bad, but it looks like a bunch of old uh, friends getting together. So um, yeah, the the cold feet is set in, and they are they are scrapping it. Yeah. Uh, well, they're justified in doing so. Like, I, th- I think after this, we'll probably kind of wrap up here before long and talk about what if we thought it was going to be good or not, because that's kind of <laughs> what you want to do with this. Um, but so the the reason why they were a little squeamish, they were going to be putting in anywhere from over a hundred million dollars into this, which would have been substantial. Um, Batman and Robin um, lost about twelve Sixteen million, roughly. Like it, it, yeah. it didn't yeah. make any money. Um, One eight seven uh, lost about fifteen million. Steel didn't make any. Like it made, it lost most of its money. Uh, and it, it was it only cost. It only cost sixteen to make too. It only cost sixteen million. They did not make that back. Fire down below. Uh, it made almost a, a little more than a tenth of its, uh, or a, about a sixth of its money back. Um, yeah. and then what? Mad City. I don't even know what the fuck that is. That lost a ton of John, money. John Travolta and Dustin Hoffman. That w- that cost fifty. It earned back ten point five. The, the Postman was the big one though. Good. You got the numbers on that. That's what killed. That's what killed Kevin Costner's career. Eighty million dollars, <laughs> and it uh, it made a hundred. It made seventeen million. That movie's like three fucking hours long, and nothing happens, from what I understand. It's pretty bad. It's it's pretty bad. Uh, at, least Water, at least Waterworld had an energy to it. Well, I was gonna say Dances with Wolves is close to four hours long, and that's I think supposed to be his best movie, uh, from what I understand. But he didn't direct that, did he? Did he direct I Dances? I think he did. Okay, I think he did. That he gets that. I think that's his that's his masterpiece. Is that the Postman was <laughs> just as long and not interesting. Uh, Sphere, <laughs> Sphere. I was actually kind of surprised by. I enjoy that movie. Eighty million. It only made thirty-seven million. Uh, yeah. This, Side note, I, I enjoy that movie too, although that had a lot to do with where I was at that point in my life. Like, I was really up on Michael Crichton at the time, and uh, it, it's funny, the, the advertising for that movie, I mean, I like aquatic monster movies. Oh, yeah. And what, what got me to get my mom to take me to go see that movie, and she, like, rolled her eyes. She was like, you want to see that? Because she read the book. I read the book too. <laughs> she read the book, and she was like, that book sucked. <laughs> like... Um, the dra- there's a dragonfish in one shot of that tra- two shots of that trailer. It's just this deep sea fish that like goes pink against Dustin Hoffman's mask, mm-hmm. and it's a nothing scene in that movie. It's just a it's just a jump scare that happens at like a random moment in the movie. But that those two shots were what got me to want to see the movie, and uh, I enjoy it to this day. Yeah, um, I still like actually, it. Actually, um, Leif Schreiber. That was the first time I saw him, and forevermore I will love Liv Schreiber. I can't remember the first time I saw Liv Schreiber. Is he was he in Scream? 
Uh, yeah. Okay, that might have uh, been one I've seen him. He plays a cotton. Was it cotton? The the red herring, basically. Oh, yeah, He's I the can. guy that, that's framed as as the. Oh killer. right 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 yes yes. Um, major league. Anyway. <laughs> I was gonna say <laughs> yeah, major, major league forty six million dollars. Jesus. Uh, well, that was one of the sequels. That was yeah. like the third major league. Yeah. I think. <laughs> like, uh, Tarzan. The Lost City? Is that what that is? Tarzan the Lost yeah. City? Yeah, I don't know what the fuck think, that is. I think that was a Casper Van Dien movie, dude. It I, wasn't Greystoke. Like, Greystoke, at least you get Christopher Lambert. This was, I think, Casper Van Dien. All, all said and done, from 97 to 98, just these movies, um, they lost $296 million. <sighs> fuck. $296, that's $296 million that are just... Just gone. <laughs> fairy dust. Just fairy dust. <laughs> Just gone. Um, yeah. And then Wild Wild West, like I said, 170 million. It lost 57 million dollars. Um, so yeah, at this point, they're not trusting their, you know, their cash cows, John Peters and Tim Burton, to to make the money. So they scrap it, and um, we will never get our Nick Cage Superman movie. Yeah, it needs to be said the the last day of pre-production before things were shut down very abruptly. Uh, the story goes that um, John Peters' like production assistant showed up at like the workshop where they were building the skull ship. By the way, it was constructed out of uh, toy like model train parts, mm-hmm. and it looks amazing. Yeah, it does look um, good. Th- the his like assistant, his personal assistant, showed up in the workshop and said, "Oh, uh, John, John needs the skull ship." And then they took it, and then production was closed down like the the same day. <laughs> and to this day, I think the skull ship is still framed in John Peters's office. In fact, John Schnepp puts the camera in front of it and says, "Hey, I found the skull ship." Yeah, found the skull ship. <laughs> yeah, um, and apparently, uh, like they did a camera test with uh, the Superman suit and on Nick Cage, like the very same day that they shut down production. So there's. They show at the very end of the documentary some photos of Nick Cage with various types of lighting to, you know, get a, a feel for how this thing's going to look on film, um, and then that was that was that. Um, and yeah, uh, oh what, what you what you think of the uh, the ILM tests for uh, the flying effects? Did I you, did I didn't I didn't, I didn't note that. Okay, well, it's just a brief moment in the documentary, but we get to see some test footage of what uh, Superman's iconic flight would have looked like in this movie. Oh, and yes, Tim the Burton. jumping, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's why I wanted to bring it up. It's because um, in the in the old days, uh, early on in Superman's uh, comic book days, uh, he didn't fly. Like it, it's it's a thing that nerds know that he 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 leapt tall buildings in a single bound. He didn't fly. He just jumped really fucking high. Um, and Tim Burton, I guess, wanted to get back to that, uh, which is kind of surprising. But visceral was the word that he and the effects artists all kept using in reference to how he wanted it to look. And I get the sense that uh, what we got in Man of Steel, like the look and the feel of it was pretty close to what he had in mind. Um, but yeah, it would be jump. It would be like Ang Lee's uh, Hulk, where he, he doesn't fly. He just bounces. He just jumps really fucking far. <laughs> it's not flying. He just jumps like 15 miles. <laughs> but yeah, the, some of the, the CGI test footage looked passable. I mean, it looked on par with Spider-Man 1, which is 
not great, <laughs> but with a darker color palette, maybe would have looked a little better than the first Spider-Man, although I maintain that Spider-Man looks good when it needs to. Some some of those fully CGI Spider-Man shots are kind of kind of hokey, but eh, it's that kind of movie. But yeah, Kyle, um, there was one, there was a couple quotes from that fella, Sylvain, that I wanted to throw out there right before we start talking about how we thought this would have gone down, but um, I thought this was really, really thoughtful. Um, and like I said, he's very blunt, <laughs> and I like that about what he has to say in his interviews. Um, so he was a concept artist, the one from Europe, and he says, development hell doesn't happen with no-name directors. Um, and he goes on to explain that basically what happened to Tim Burton's Superman Lives is, is what happens when a studio is afraid to let go of someone that they actually do have confidence in but they they're they're getting cold feet about things and so it results in the situation the scenario that i explained to you off the air it's like akin to dating a really 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 hot girl that you just do not jive with um so you end up like maintaining the relationship for far longer than you probably should for all the wrong reasons yeah and it's very similar to how things went down with tim burton and warner brothers where it's like they they strung him along for a couple of years hoping things would work out and then at the end of the day they they broke it off but but he'll never get those two years back um i think he got paid and, for those two years though he, there is a a note in like a some sort of insider news article that says that he he took a fraction of what was actually owed to him um, maybe because he felt it belonged to the artist or something, or maybe just because... I mean, John Peters describes Tim Burton walking away as him being, like, mortified. Like, he almost went into hiding. Like, he, he was deeply upset to the point he just didn't want to deal with it anymore. Um, and, yeah, again, another quote from Sylvain. Uh, Highly creative people have a hard time getting movies made. And a lot of it has to do with that unfortunate relationship where highly creative people are the people who change things up who give you the unexpected who give you that product that you could never get from anyone else but then there's the fear that that product won't make you your money back because it's too different or too radical and you need to toe that line you need to balance that out and sometimes the studio gets it right sometimes they don't which is why a lot of highly creative people that get money of their own at some point end up going into business for themselves <laughs> and you know a lot of times end up making shit because they don't have the business sense to do it right but you know whatever <laughs> at least they can own their own failures uh you know i just realized something and we'll definitely get into this one day when we do the batman master class but i think what rewatching those schumacher batman movies uh he really used the original series the the tv show as inspiration for the sets and and uh, and everything, and I think the costumes as well. Uh, having said that, I think in this for Joel Schumacher, I think he's like, I'm gonna make Batman, but I'm gonna use the TV show as inspiration, but I'm gonna make it less gay <laughs> because because if you go back and watch some of that TV show, it is way more gay than the the, the Schumacher Batman. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I'm sh I'm sure there was some studio exec on the set that was just like doing like a, a <laughs> like a slashing <laughs> motion across slashing. the throat, just like mm, no, 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 like dial oh it back, goodness. like or like doing like a like a pushing down motion where it's like let's 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 tone it down a bit, <laughs> like 
bit more, bit and more. I'm, and I'm not, I'm not using gay derogatory. I'm just saying, like that original show was really gay. Like this, th- yeah. Uh. Well, I think the the word is campy. <laughs> campy. Camp. I'm sorry. I don't. It's I, it's campy. I mean, they they in a lot of in a lot of ways they they run parallel to each other. But, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. But yeah, I'm sure I'm sure the studio was not sure what to what to do with that. Um, yeah, <laughs> you can't see it, but Kyle's doing the, doing the rapid fire slash. throat slashing motion. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I mean, as oh, far as I, if if memory serves, Batman Forever made a shit ton of money. Um, well, Jim Carrey. Yeah, Batman Forever made a shit ton of money, which is why he got the green light to take another swing at what? it. It was everywhere, dude. I had those cups. We had definitely had those cups from McDonald's, man. They had marketing everywhere. Well, and it, that was the point. Like, that was the point of Batman Forever. And I, I need to save some of my gas for when we do the master class. But that was the point of Batman Forever is that Batman Returns, uh, they kind of shot themselves in the foot with. Because um, from a merchandising standpoint, that movie was not very marketable. The Penguin was too scary. When they made action figures of, of, the, of, the, of the Penguin character, they ended up using the comic book version of his design they didn't use the Danny DeVito penguin because he was too scary and they didn't want to put him on store shelves same with the fucking happy meal toys I, I still have some of those like in my parents I have some of those somewhere yeah and those. from a merchandising standpoint Batman Returns was very difficult to market um, whereas Batman Forever was as friendly as it fucking gets oh I had all those toys bro all those toys yeah so that was the point was that Warner Brothers was trying to you know get get back the the chunk of the audience that they missed out on with Batman Returns which I mean I'll just go ahead and say it right now Batman Returns I think is my favorite Batman movie it's it's mine too it's it's definitely more of a Tim Burton movie than a Batman movie but I like Tim Burton so (laughs) um but yeah the death of Superman lives what happened um I think, I, yeah. I, you I go say, first, Kyle. I think Four that I would have loved this movie. I I like like just like you, '90s Tim Burton can't do anything wrong. He's 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 batting a thousand for me. Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice. We want to go to the '80s stuff. Uh, did he do Ed Wood? Was yes, that, he did. I'm gonna watch that after we get done here. I think I was gonna do Mars Attacks, but I think I'm gonna watch Ed Wood. Um, I loved Mars Attacks growing up. I love Sleepy Hollow. That is probably his, as far as his movies go, I think I love Sleepy Hollow just for the aesthetic. I, I love everything about the it's aesthetic. Beautiful. It's beautiful. I it's love it. Beautiful. It, it's the perfect Tim Burton movie as far as just atmosphere and creating what you think of when you think of Tim Burton uh, movies. Um, I, think, I think Edward Scissorhands, like, <laughs> in terms of look and feel, I think that one's maybe there, my favorite. But it has an oddity to it, yeah. I know what you mean. It has a, it has a strange pulse to it, and it it twists and turns. It I, I know what you mean, yeah. It's a special movie in a lot of ways. I think Ed Wood and Batman Returns are my very very favorites. But from a purely aesthetic standpoint, uh, yeah, Edward Scissorhands. I think. Well, I think the emotional the emotional stuff of uh, Edward Scissorhands it jumps so much. Oh like my Vincent, God! Have, when was the Pr- last time? When was the last time you listened to any of the music from Edward Scissorhands? I haven't listened to it. I I know what you're th- I know what you're talking about. Is that uh, is that Danny Elfman? It's got to be Danny Elfman. That's Danny Elfman. It has to be Danny Elfman. Uh, Danny they, Elfman 
like collecting his fucking paycheck, <laughs> like earning it. Um, yeah, I remember Vincent Price dying in there was really heavy, and then when he kills um, Anthony Michael Hall, I remember that was like, <laughs> oh shit. Um, but yeah, I think this would have been a lot of fun. Uh, I think that uh, it would have been interesting for the time for him to take on a bright movie, as you would say, quote unquote, um, yeah. not his aesthetic. Um, I think it would have been very culty. I don't think it would have been a financial success. And um, in all honesty, I don't think it would have done well because he wasn't taking a traditional take on Superman. This would have been a bit more, like, inadvertently, it would have been more fan service getting back to, um, the, like, the Superman jumping as opposed to flying. I mean, people would be like, why isn't he flying? Well, well actually, Superman doesn't actually fly. Uh, he actually <laughs> jumps. So just from that, I'm like, it would have been more of a nerd movie. But the nerds would have still had problems with it. And the big thing is that if Nick Cage was going to uh, take a more, um, uh, not so much a stoic take on him, and more of a bumbly uh, superhero, I don't think it would have done as well. I think that if this was going to be financially successful, it would have to be Henry Cavill's, like, still stoic, even when I'm Clark Kent. Well, I think... I mean, we, we spent a lot of time talking about Nick Cage as Clark Kent, but, I mean, the fact of the matter is, like, there's always supposed to be a separation between Clark Kent and Superman, like, of some sort. Like, like I said, Clark Kent finds himself in the comics at some point and basically does become Superman, but I think any any actor worth their, worth their salt is going to actually try to make something of that, and I think Nick Cage would have done that. I think what we saw in the test footage was him more envisioning Clark Kent. Um, but for Superman, you know, I, I think you would get some Cameron Poe in there where you'd, you'd get him, like, playing to the public a little bit. Kind of, like, you know, stay out of trouble, kids. You know, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, trying to be cool. Oh, man, that would be great. Where it's like he's trying to be, like, he's trying to be Superman. <laughs> like doing th- what he think what doing what he thinks is expected of him i think nick cage in each of his movies throws his own line in there just one line and i think you could probably pinpoint it in every movie he has one line where you're like that's nick cage saying that well, he had a lot of them in a in bad bad lieutenant <laughs> bad lieutenant i think face off mandy eating, eating a peach for our mandy like oh no you're a vicious snowflake what hypothetically what do you think his weird line would be it would be something strange to it it would be to a child too that's what it would be it would be something so strange but he would have to have something who do you think i am captain america America? (laughs) (laughs) something like that something cheesy i'm gonna sit on it because i uh i'm I'm curious i'm gonna i'm gonna think about that because he had to have he'd had to have some some kind of strange line I think he's the one that came up with I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence <laughs> that was his line it's too good of a line for it not to be his I'm going to spell out the, the plot of the movie in, in uh, three seconds flat no I know exactly what it was going to be it was going to be where he's like uh, where he toasts at the museum he's like to our founding fathers had they been uh, caught they would have been tried and hung like that would have that was something that he added in there I'm sure um, but yeah, so what do you think? Do you think you would you would have enjoyed it? Do you think it would have been a cult classic? Do you think it would have been a flop? What do you think? Um, I think, I think I would have enjoyed it, but not to the extent 
I think this would have heralded like the start of like the downward trend in in Tim Burton's filmography. Yeah. Which Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I, yeah, it would have been around that time. Um, and yeah, I think it would have if he made this before Planet of the Apes, it would have started the trend early mm-hmm. uh, because it's too big. Like when you, when I think Tim Burton, I think kind of intimate, you know? Yeah. Like, know like his 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 movies take place in big plate in like large sets, large locations, but the actual core of the story tends to be very, very tight. It's like there's only a handful of important characters. Uh, we get to spend a lot of time with each one of them individually, um, and I feel like just looking at the concept art, it's like, whoa, this is really massive. This is really sprawling. It seems too epic for for something that he's that he would be interested in. Um, mm-hmm. And it, f- it feels busy, I guess. And I feel like it would probably be kind of meandering and kind of all over the place. And it needs to be said from an action standpoint. Um, I mean, the spectacle, like, <laughs> I mean, me in the late 90s, the, if, if you advertised Superman fighting Doomsday, I would, I would be there day one. Like, because 1993, I think it was when uh, Superman died in the comics. That was, that was like, pretty much what got me started reading comics it was a big fucking deal um same for a lot of people in our age range and like just just the idea of getting to see that fight on screen would have gotten me in the theater but the fact of the matter is tim burton has never been a good action director if you ask me um he's he's i mean obviously with like sleepy hollow and mars attacks he's pretty good at framing violence um but in terms of like action as spectacle no. Like the Batman movies are a good sign of of how he handles that. It's like he's not great at showing violence as like entertainment, uh-huh. and having like a knockdown, drag out brawl with with a big monster, like a fist fight with a monster in a sewer. It's like I'm sure there would be studio pressure to have that scene be like this big, massive set piece sequence, but I don't see Tim Burton being terribly interested in doing that. No. It's like we want this to be like a like a, a five to seven minute just slugfest and Timber and be like, Why? <laughs> it's like why can't he just hit him and like go home and, and like do arts and crafts or something? But I like his quote at the end of the movie where he says, like, visit me when I'm ninety, uh I'll still be here. Still gonna make it. Still gonna make it. Still gonna make it. Still gonna make it. So apparently he he still thinks about it from time to time. Obviously it's never gonna happen, but like it's it's a project he's attached to, and you could tell just like seeing like the footage of him with Nick Cage that there was some enthusiasm there. But I don't know. I feel like as much enthusiasm as he could have brought to the table, maybe the project itself was bigger than him. As as a lot of movie productions tend to be, so I feel like there would be really good parts to it, but on the whole, it probably wouldn't add up to something amazing. Just nah. just just good, not amazing. Even yeah. so, it's it's fun to speculate. <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, um, I think we're about done. You think? Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's all I had to say about that. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Yeah.